People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Greenwashed on RCR with me, Jaspreet Bopperai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Our number for texting your feedback throughout the show is 2057. Our email address is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And do we have a few emails, feedbacks, etc., filling our mailboxes this week? But first, hi, Don. Hey, Jasper, and good day, listeners. Um, it's been a busy old week in the south. Uh, Jasper's looking fresh on the other side of the <laughs> Zoom here, so uh, she's obviously had nothing going on in her life. Nothing, nothing, nothing at, at all. all. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, but at least have a have had a sunnier, brighter week than the mm. previous weekend. And yeah, we have. And just for the old timers in this show, remember, 56 years ago today, decimal currency hit New Zealand. And as a 10-year-old, I was um, still remember the jingle. I won't sing it to you, Jasper. Our listenership might just collapse. Uh, <laughs> you, but, I am not stopping you, Don. Please but, fill your boots. But actually, it was interesting because as a 10-year-old at school, um, learning decimal currency was so easy relative to uh, dividing by tens and hundreds and things like that compared to the pound, shillings and pence type thing. Um, yeah, it was just a whole lot easier once you got into the swing of it. So if D-Day, I'm it was looking called. slightly quizzical, gosh, I find it hard to even imagine, Don, because I'm so used to just working with the decimal. Yes, yeah. So there you go. And, yeah, well, of course, the metric system came in, kilometres, uh, kilometres an hour, we used to have miles per hour and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's it made life different for a 10-year-old, and um, I don't think it's affected me too badly. Just out of interest, on was maths and science considered racist then? Uh, no, maths and science is a fundamental part of uh, my education. Uh, I love maths. I really loved um, doing um, decimals and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there we go. That's 56 years today. Time's flying. 
And so hasn't it been a a heck of a week? I mean, I in New Zealand politics this week, I mean, how many more uh, government MPs can sort of seemingly be in trouble there's a whole bunch of them. They seem to have a whole bunch of trouble coming at them. And I, poor old Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, he, I don't think, I think he's quite happy to be leaving the country. Talking about bread and butter budgets. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's even despite this, the polls, though, are a funny thing. They still seem to think that uh, Labour is fine, National is in trouble. And for uh, regular listeners, you would know I have. Absolutely. No love lost for national. None at all. It's it is where the polls just seem to be a little odd. But see, I and I don't mind polls this far out from an election, but I do have an issue about polls close to an election. Uh and I do have a problem with um early voting. I just don't think that's acceptable. So um, you know, uh, maybe maybe I'm different to other people and I know I am, but it just seems to be that uh if you've made up your mind who you're going to vote for two or three weeks before the election, have you put enough thought into it? That's one of my angles. And the second one is I don't like the polls because clearly in recent years, the polls have been erratic between different pollsters. So if they can be erratic, uh, is there is there a bias in their questioning and things like that? And I think there is. And the other thing that just got me in the weekend, um, watching television, the the seduction, uh, you might call it, to to actually join the Maori role was the worst I'd ever seen it portrayed. Uh, right in the middle of the TV One News on, on Saturday night, there it was. Um, and my wife commented, what the heck's all that about? And she's part Maori, by the way. Um, she said, what the hell is that? And I said, well, this is, um, you've got uh, till I think it's July 13 to decide which role you want to be on. Uh, but the bias was quite palpable that uh, you should talk to your uh, family Maori and um, and make your mind up. And pretty much the inference was you'd better make your mind up to join the Maori role. That's what it was to me. I just, you know, this separatism nonsense drives me nuts as well, as you know. Reason number 6,791 about why I'm glad we disconnected the TV two years ago. Our TV wouldn't have survived this long with the sort of programming you're talking about, Don. That's probably right. Probably right. Uh, so what else has been happening, Jasper? I mean, I've um, I've been filling in my night nights. Uh, I haven't got through it all yet. So I've still got a bit to go on the Ivor Cummins, uh, Dr. Jacob. Norden Gord, Gord's um, YouTube clip called The Greatest History Never Told. And I'm right, I've got to 2019 and we're talking about where the UN and the WEF um, sort of join hands. So yeah, nothing to see in any of the stuff that you and I have talked about for recent months. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see and nothing to see in what my dad came back in 92 from the UN the peacekeeping forces in Somalia. Nothing to see. You know, yes. uh, you, as you know, Don, so my parents were visiting here. Uh, they have just left last weekend. And gosh, that's been rough. I saw them after four years and three months flew by. But we were again reminiscing about, you know, dad's tenure in Somalia and the fact that Somalia still today remains just as bad as it was then, probably worse, followed by my brother, 
heading to Congo when his battalion was called up for active duty. And, you know, he was telling me, he says, you know, I, when we was there, things felt that he felt that they were not really achieving much, especially when he lost seven men in an ambush. And then it becomes all the more real. But now he says, looking back, he says, I can't believe that I didn't see much of what has happened in this time. Mm -hmm. So he, he usually has a blue sun hat, the blueberry, one of the UN ones. And it, uh, he it usually accompanies him this time around. He was kidding. He says, "You know what, Jasprit said. Yes, Dad. He said I didn't bring that blueberry along with me this time. He says I <laughs> had no idea what you would do with it if I was seen wearing it. I'm sure you bought him a good New Zealand merino hat to uh, to have on in this southern chill. Um, and so on top of all that, I've been watching and reading with interest the Sweden exit, sort of the scaling down of their net zero ambition. And then I looked at uh, another website that showed that Volkswagen is halting for a period its EV productions in one of its plants because sales are not what they expected. And there is tension coming against uh, you know the, the volumes of, of EVs. There's just not the requirement for them. Uh, I gather in the UK, They've got 900,000 uh, EVs, but they could be peaking out at that. Um, the directives to get rid of uh, internal combustion engines and, and diesel cars by 2035 now looks a bit tenuous. And, and the Guardian went after Rishi Sonic in the UK, Don, mm. saying that the Guardian's view on Rishi Sonic and the net zero, a cowardly retreat. Mm, because it's, yep, it seems that uh, even... Uh, Rishi might be seeing a bit of the writing on the wall. Incidentally, just out of interest, Rishi Sonak, the British Prime Minister, he is the son-in-law of India's biggest tech giant, Narayan Murthy, the founder of Infosys. And Infosys in India, about five years ago, got the government contract for digital ID, which in India is called in Hindi, the Aadhaar card. Aadhaar literally translates into existence. So this is a card that everyone has to use in India to prove their existence. If you are uh, be before, below the poverty line uh, welfare recipient, which in India is in kind, so rice, pulses, wheat, cooking oil, you need to have that Aadhaar card. You can't do anything in India today. Buy a vehicle, buy a cell phone operate your bank account, uh, even buy a rail ticket. Everything needs that. So it, it is no surprise to me that his son-in-law is uh, heading the same thing in the UK. It, it's amazing how predictable all of this is. How Oh, good ideas. Uh, they, uh, they make <laughs> money. Good ideas. <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage of cash in that family, I don't think. And interestingly, talk about the UK. I think we should follow with interest, and I know it's been talked about on RCR before, but the Farage debanking, Nigel Farage's debanking, and how difficult it has been for him to get um, a bank account again. And I've, of course, this has been the toing and froing about why uh, he didn't support Tommy Robinson when he got debanked. And, you know, there's been people in New Zealand debanked as well. Um, I think, you know, if we can, if, any of our listeners have any knowledge about people being debanked because of their opinions, political opinions generally, 
um, we'd love to hear about it because that's something we can't have in New Zealand. We just can't have it. But the, the world we live in right now, it wouldn't surprise me this stuff could come anything, close. Yep, anything is possible. Just when you think we've uh, hit rock bottom, it finds this insanity finds a new bottom. <laughs> it does. <laughs> right. I think we will have a look at some of the feedback that came in last week, uh, Don. Uh, this is from Andrew Watts. Don, are you two so far right or are you right so far? And another one in the very similar vein. We've been accused of being far right, Don, and just free. This is from a cell phone number that I won't read out. But really, we've been right so far. So something you said, Don, really resonated there. I can't remember what I said five minutes ago, so I don't know what I said last week. But you know, I love the guy, the way he's written it. It is very well put. Good on you. Showing your age, like Don. <laughs> <laughs> no, but very honestly, neither can I remember what I said five minutes ago. The amount of, uh, I think the amount of information we've had to process, Don, in the last three years has been overwhelming. I don't think I've never I've ever suffered from such a data overload before. Wait, you're a speed reader and you've got a very good retentive memory. Um, if you've got the sieve uh, on top of you or around your head like I've got, <laughs> you, you want to know how hard it is for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we, love, we love that feedback. It was good, funny. Somebody else has emailed. Hi, a major elected official, a senior elected official of Lower Hutt is a friend. Pretty and charming, but no idea. I have friends in this area who are parliamentary staffers, just the same. <laughs> Rabbit communists and don't even know it. They write the answers for question time. Uh, so funny reading that. And I understand what, what they're saying. I remember I used to do... Um, stand-ups effectively uh interviews for backbenchers when it was if it's still on tv i don't know um but um a lot of the wellington staffers were there and of course i was the only right-wing person there and i'd get booed and hissed and jeered it was so funny and here you are um you're, you're putting yourself out there as the farmer that's got a right of center view and it just was not required in downtown Wellington. I mind you, when I think about it, there could have been a table of one or two right wingers who kept right quite close, uh, quite quiet in a corner. But the majority of people in back benches when we when it was filmed live and put out live, I think, um uh made great TV, I think. I never got paid for it. Um <laughs> And actually, Wallace, Wallace Chapman, who runs that chat on uh, radio New Zealand in the afternoons, was the lead compere with another guy, Damien, I've forgotten who. Yeah, they were nice guys, but um, yeah, clearly I had a different view. And imagine the state of Wellington dawn today a decade later. Yeah. Oh, you'd 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 be struggling to get in there. Anyone uh, from our side of the ledger or my side of the ledger well, is there anyone like that in Wellington now? They probably wouldn't be invited to speak anyway. Yeah, I know. You know, inclusive means included if you if you think the same. They like yeah. diversity, but no diversity of thought or opinion. Mm. Ah, the next one, Don, from Mr. Melville. I will let you do the honors here. Oh, this came into the inbox at RCR and it staggered me. I mean, um, I know the guy uh, who's in this email. Uh, he's the senior policy guy in Feds, and 
um, the email was obviously forwarded to us by someone who knew that I had talked to Tom Sheehan going around the country. And it's basically saying, uh, to be very clear, fed farmers must not be associated with this roadshow. And I had wondered why um, we couldn't get feds even locally to support the just an advertising, like a small, a short email saying, go along. We don't need to endorse or, or, or disagree with this guy, just go along. And so even that was shut down. And um, it, it was pretty disappointing to read that from an organisation that I once led, uh, where they're shutting down their members from having information to even attend a forum, a learning forum, uh, from from staff, nonetheless, if anyone's going to do that, it should have been the president of Federated Farmers, um, who was up for election last week, by the way. Um, I find this the most appalling uh, output from Federated Farmers I've ever seen. Uh, and I'm very disappointed with it. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be talking to this guy. I know him quite well and saying, um, I'm sorry, I, I feel bad for him because to me, he has been coerced by someone to put that out. And I just think it's a, it's, it's a first. Federated Farmers should be uh, open and encouraging inclusivity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is quite galling seeing that one mm. line, Don, that's mm. in bold and underlined. I yes. need to be very clear. Fed farmers must not be associated with this roadshow. If feds are associated with hosting a climate spe- a skeptic, it will hold us back in our advocacy for and, a decade. And that was, the, that was the next worst thing I'd read in that whole thing. That... Effectively, the Haywaka Ikanoa concept is they're all in the tent together, all in the waka together, you might say, all in the boat together. Um, and this is where we are. What's the point? You might as well just chuck it in and fall over and line up uh, uh, and, and be taxed as they want to do. You might as well just forget about it because uh, your advocacy isn't worth a dime if that's all you're, you're thinking about. We'll hold us back in our advocacy for a decade. What the heck? All you they were asked was to just send an email. Just you mentioned it in, a, in an email. And, and Dr. Tom Sheehan, here we go. It wasn't his information he was uh, talking about. It was from other uh, leading atmospheric physicists. No one has refuted them in New Zealand. They just they uh, if they if they attempt to, it's about uh, it's about uh, what's the word diminishing the status of the guy. Will Happer mm. or William Van Weingarten and and others, mind you, and not one column inch yet of print media has been dedicated to Tom Sheehan's output. <clears throat> now, I would love to hear from anyone who has got a rural or regional paper with some reporting in it, because as far as I'm aware, a week on, there has been zero. And um, that just shows you where our mainstream media is. Uh, if we can't have someone putting up a view that has clearly got merit uh, because the narrative doesn't suit. Uh, that's a bad place for New Zealand to be. But this is not just mainstream media, Don. This is farming uh, advocacy organisations oh. doing the job of MSM here. Yeah, well, or, and we have... And we that's have a another... simplistic way of putting this, but that's yes. how I see it. Oh, and we have another um, a letter that we'll talk about another week, um, mm. perhaps, 
that's of a similar vein from Beef and Lamb New Zealand. And uh, so it just shows you this club in Wellington, supposedly farmer, well, they're all paid for by farmers, um, is not representing them because they've been told uh, what, what they can and can't say. And we're now being told that if we don't tick all these boxes for emissions, um, you won't get your products into the world premium markets. Well, that's fine to say, uh, but it's not, uh, yeah. It, how can they say one molecule of methane is altering the temperature? They can't. No one can define that molecule of um, methane is altering the temperature to such a degree that they need to tax it. And yet we've been allowing our trade negotiators and our farming organisations to fall into this hole. It just seems nonsensical. Hmm. I am agree. Yeah, I, I was, really not really not much more to say. Does this I, email says at all? I wasn't going to have a rant today on that because I figured I've done it to death. And um, I'm sorry, listeners, it's, it's my hobby horse and I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> there is another email here from uh, Anne-Marie. She says, hi, guys, I've attached an article from the Piaka Post. It's all about how farming is destroying New Zealand and we need to gift our land for social housing, etc. It's stated. June 28th, page 7. I thought you might find it interesting. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It is very interesting. So I looked up uh, Piaka Post, and I found this particular edition uh, from 28th June. And conversations, the article is titled, Farming Has Only Got Itself to Blame for Its Crises. Right. So it is written by an ecologist who says, that the climate crisis this year, with the rising cost of of rising or unobtainable insurance costs on the top of other related crises, such as rising fuel prices, recessions, and so on, shows you that you must end farming right now. It is to stop industrial farming is the best way to reduce emissions. I've have I've asked you the stone privately. What defines industrial farming? Well, I don't know it to be to be honest. I'm not sure the definition, but I was of the view that it is probably linked to um, feedlot farming or um, you know chickens or pork, pork uh, pigs being raised in buildings in in uh, high density. Uh, I'm damned if I know what it means when you've got free-range, open pastoral farming in New Zealand. This sort of thing is very open to debate, just the way the word regenerative is. So Mm. if this is regenerative farming, is everything else degenerative? Because I can tell you, uh, a farmer in India with five cows, ten cows, will still be going for urea and DAP. And the ones in Sri Lanka, well, the ones who decided to give it up, the crisis there, just have to look it up. And you can find what happened. But the best part of this, <laughs> or the most interesting part of this whole article, is, is not even the fact that she says that long, hard, poorly paid, isolated, uninspiring, unethical work is what has got you know farming communities destroyed. For those who followed us, I have spoken about the fact that right now, migrants are undercutting or I should say overcutting, Kiwi workers, because they need to be paid more, something like $30 plus 
everything else on the top because that's what our government has decided. Uh, they need to meet a um, median market income. You're actually seeing more experienced Kiwis get less than an overseas worker fresh off the boat. And uh, I know it because at one point I was an overseas worker fresh off the boat. So she goes on to say, the psychologist, that, yeah, so she's gone on to say everything is poorly paid. That doesn't quite meet the Statistics New Zealand uh, figures of what dairy farming pays. But she says, you can do a lot of good by selling or gifting your access assets to those that need them. So your land or transitioning your land to native forestry or there's that word again, regenerative horticulture and social housing. Give it all away. Give it all away. You can, you can, will own nothing and you will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Build back better, they say. Build back better. Uh, look, it's it's a bit all over the shop, that argument. I mean, I've heard it for years. Uh, someone's got to pay the bills. Um, this won't pay any bills. It won't pay for a hospital operation or a hospital. It won't pay for a school teacher. It won't pay for a policeman. Um, certainly won't pay uh, uh, for your local infrastructure. So, you know, we've got, I think it's 71 billion of new debt, uh, core crown debt. In, th in three or five years, it's effectively doubled anyway, and more than mm. double. Mm. Someone's got to pay it, and this sort of nonsense doesn't pay it. Um, the farmers of New Zealand will produce less if you want them to. Well, you'll just produce less. Um, uh, we'll say, look, we'll, we'll turn down the turn down the tap. Mm. That's not what New Zealand wants. If we could. I feel like saying to that to every farmer, let's take, let's turn down the tap twenty percent, thirty percent. You know, you're told that if you do that, you'll get a you'll get a market premium because you know you'll have done all the right things by these people. Well, guess what? Uh, New Zealand would be much poorer. So, on the other hand, there is lots of things that farming could do uh, better at, and that is um, have our advocacy groups and. And the industry bodies uh, tell the government to get out of our way and let us do the business of farming, stop and stop putting new costs inside the farm gate that actually do make you push the envelope a lot harder to survive. Because a lot of the things that are doing happening inside the farm gate to put more pressure on, as, as this lady seems to be saying, uh, aren't caused by international markets. They're caused by our own regulatory machine adding costs and feeding off it. Completely agree. And I think on that note, that our farming advocacy bodies could do better. It is time to introduce our guest of the week. And that is Tony Seabrook from Across the Ditch, Western Australia. Tony? The Pastoralist and Graziers Association president, and he's been president for about ooh, 10 years, I think he said. Mm. Uh, he's clearly a very staunch advocate for free enterprise. Uh, that will come out in the interview. And if you read his um, efforts in recent months on the uh, Aboriginal uh, Cultural and Heritage Order or Act that's been applied there on July 1, you'd see how um, vociferous he can get. I mean, I liked the interview, uh, Jasper Eid. He, he was a breath of fresh air. Uh, he sort of reminded me of a, a, junior, a junior me uh, because... Wellington does make you uh, a little more cautious than you would otherwise be. But Tony 
just lets it out, warts and all. He doesn't mince his words. And um, yeah, so I hope I hope we um, yeah I hope listeners enjoy the hour and a bit interview. He was he was a breath of fresh air to me. Yeah, this is certainly a no holds barred on PC interview, and uh, Tony's liked on very very staunch on property rights. I think I actually came across some of or maybe an article cross linked to him on the Facebook page Property Rights Australia, and he was gracious enough a couple of uh, nights earlier to give us quite a bit of time. So if you'd like to take a break now, now's the time. Don and I will take one. Uh, a number is. 2057 if you want to text in or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. We'll be back with Tony soon. Thank you for joining us this morning. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with uh, Greenwash and uh, Don and Jaspreet. And uh, remember to send in your text 2057 for any feedback or inbox at realitycheck.radio for emails. We love your feedback. And um, I just, today we've got a fantastic guest. And a couple of weeks ago, I saw a YouTube clip uh, on the pastoral uh, pastoralist and graziers association of West Australia and Tony Seabrook. And I thought, hmm, interesting chap. And then last Sunday on Outsiders uh, with Rowan Dean, I saw him again. I thought, this man's got to be on our show. And so not often we have someone who um, says it how it really is. It's not something New Zealanders are used to. And as a farmer lobbyist, I thought, Tony's our man. And today we're very honoured to have Tony in our company. Now, Tony, you're in York in Western Australia. I've learned that... Uh, my research, Western Australia is 10 times the size of New Zealand. It's got a few less people, like about 3 million, I think, and we've got about five. Um, what do you do in New York, aside from being a man in a suit one day and a man in boots the other? Well, I got shunted off to boarding school when I was 11 years old. Um, I was doing a lot of farming even before that. Dad had me on a tractor uh, way back then and, and harvested not long after. But I got back seriously farming at the end of boarding school, year 12 in 1967, uh, and I've been farming very, very actively ever since. Uh, we've taken off in a whole lot of different directions, an earth-moving business for a while in conjunction with the farming. Um, the biggest thing we've been involved in is importing machinery from America and China, uh, large four-wheel drive sprayers, four-wheel drive front-end loaders. Uh, we bring them into the country disassembled and we put them together on the property. Um, it gives us an extra sort of string to the bow because we we farm when we need to farm and to keep the staff occupied, we, we do the, the machinery stuff as well. So um, I'm still very active around the farm, still roaring around on a motorbike. Um, I've given away the big tractors and the harvesters mostly because I've done too many, too many hours in them. But I'm still very active with my son on the farm, my wife, and uh, it's a family show. Uh, and then I've got the PGA stuff on top of that. And uh, it certainly makes for a very busy life. So wait, so is it um, big broad acre property or is it intensive um Farming, what is it? I mean, I, I think I know well, what you're going to tell me. It depends where you come from. If you come from close to the coast, it's huge. If you own a farm out east of Meriden and, and you've got 30,000 acres under your belt, well, we're a hobby farmer. But uh, no, we're in the middle. We're in the middle. Yeah, we've got we yeah. got big gear, you know, 40 foot harvesters, 40 foot air seater, uh, 450 horsepower tractors. Um, but we're not at the big end of West Australia because some of those guys are huge. Yeah, so it intrigues me that you've uh, 
added that string to the above of importing because obviously there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of agencies importing big gear too, but you found a niche and it's it's profitable. Don, more than anything, it keeps me in touch with what's happening. I've got good contacts in America. I talk to them all the time. It's very sophisticated equipment, uh, highly electronic, um, and so that keeps us all pretty sharp. The stuff from China, um, I've been to China 20 times. I've seen, seen the country from top end to bottom. It's a fascinating place. I'm really saddened at the way that their leader is taking them because I, I like the Chinese people. I enjoy my time there. They're industrious. They're, they're, they're good fun. Um, I like the place, but I'm just saddened by the way that, that somehow or another Mr. Ping seems to want to take the world on. It's, it's unfortunate. Well, it is unfortunate. And just while we stay on this technology kick for a minute, um, I think that uh, with the removal of protectionism in New Zealand in 1985, and a similar time, I think you had sort of some some privileges taken away as well. Uh, aside from all those alternative things like ultra high interest rates, I think we went through a fair bit the same. Isn't it amazing how the technology uh, has hit New Zealand and Australia? Uh, the the modern technology, the, the the size of machinery, the technology that's in them seems to have um, come to our countries sort of since the turn of the century in a very big way. It wasn't there before that I'm aware of. Now, I posit this, that a lot of the stuff is devised in countries that have huge subsidies, huge protections, and they get the they get this groundswell of cash in to develop these technologies that we're actually the beneficiary of. It's a strange angle, but I think we are. What would you say to that? John, the association I'm a part of has fought for the entire time I've been there and for time before that, to try and get government out of out of industry, out of our face, get them out of the way. Um, what I saw when I first came back farming were subsidies that allowed unions to keep on demanding more and more and more. And, and we had a, a fantastic car industry here. Towards the end, we had four major manufacturers. When Mitsubishi pulled out, it left with three, Toyota, Ford and, and um, uh, Chrysler. Um, what happened was that, the subsidies just ruined our country. They just allowed the unions to keep on pressing and pressing and pressing to in the end the burden on people like ourselves selling wholesale overseas and buying sort of retail in Australia at subsidised prices. Um, it's been a very refreshing thing to see our nation open up because globalism is about us selling our product all over the world and buying what we need around the world. But I was also saddened enormously to see what went by the by and I'll put this down to voracious unions just demanding more and more and more till in the end, you can't pay workers in Australia over $40 an hour to assemble a motor car when the Americans are working on $14 and $15 an hour. You can't because it flows through into the cost structures. And we're having this at the moment. Inflation right now, it's got to be nailed because it will kill us if we don't. 100%. And, and of course, uh, it's almost like the expansion of government um, in your um, state and in our country uh, is killing the golden, golden goose. And the, you know, this I, I read a, a document from, I think, uh, Daniel Wilde that addressed your organisation last year, stating that uh, effectively uh, uh, bureaucracy sort of grown about four or five times faster than um, than the business of farming, basically. Very hard to, uh, to compete with the cost of bureaucracy uh, when it's going at that sort of rate. Yeah. Don, I've, I've seen the publication. Uh, Denver gave me a copy of it when I met with him about a week ago, a bit less than a week ago. And, and it's like the old frog in the pot of hot water on the stove. You, you hardly notice that the water's getting hotter and hotter until suddenly you look around the place and creeping, crawling socialism and bureaucracy 
It's getting to every corner of our lives. Um, and and it, it, in the long run, that old saying, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. No, you're not, mate. You're in a white car I've had to pay for, and you're not going to help me. You're going to work me over. I know that for a start. So please just don't tell me lies. Get out of my way and let me do what I do well. The, the meddlers are rampant, I used to say. And, uh, the meddlers are rampant. <laughs> I thought they'd go away, but they never have. Um, no, so, they're all so, the time. So talking about meddlers, um, it looks like this latest uh, Aborigine Cultural Heritage Act has really put the cat amongst the pigeons your way. And yeah, having done a little bit of research on it, because clearly that's what you were talking about on Outsiders, um, it seems to me that yeah, you know, some people are saying that the former act was working okay. And if that's the case, what was deficient about it? Why, why well, are they, let, why are they yeah, doing this? Let, let's step, step back a bit. There's a madness in this country now. Um, people are so inured to it. They don't notice this happening, but there's an absolutely absurd overlay, and it's the whole Indigenous issue. Now, we have a population here, uh, as of the census of 2021, indicating a little bit over 3% of our population identified as Indigenous. Now, the truly Indigenous would, would question whether it's that much, but the impact they're having on the way our country is being run is, is just out of this world. It's just when you step back a bit and have a look or an outsider comes into a country and has a look, it's a madness. You know, this, this comes to our nation at an enormous expense. And I was asked in an interview by a television journalist about two weeks ago about the Mabo decision of 1993, which is the land rights issue. And he said, you all said the sky would fall in, and it didn't. And I said, sorry, sorry mate, it did. You've got no idea how much harm that Mabo decision has actually made. Um, in, in every way, it's costing us hundreds of billions of dollars to try and comply with this because the, the demands are voracious. There's no end to it. The empowerment of people that, that now call themselves, well, traditional owners is the phrase they use, but not much emphasis on traditional, not on owners. Um, across every facet of what we do, it's costing. So what's the delivery point? When you look at the, the situation that the Indigenous people in Australia find themselves in, we have this thing called the gap, and that's the difference between the, the life of, of, of Indigenous people and, and you know, white Australians. The gap is there. There's no doubt about that. But it hasn't closed. By all the measures that you would think that this decision might have cured the problem, it damn well hasn't. Now, there's a huge amount of money going into, the, into this industry, and the IPA have come up with a figure of $100 million a day, a day. Now, $37 billion a year funding this, and we still see film footage of people that can't speak English, Indigenous Australians who can't speak English. You, you see these people living in communities that, that obviously are not part of our main society, and they damn well should be. And I've been saying it loudly for quite a long time. Forget about the voice resolution, well, referendum, which is what we're talking about. We need a royal commission to work out what the hell is going on. And, and from the point of view of myself, and you can see the map behind me, um, we represent the pastoral state of West Australia as well as the ag area down south. Now, the government money that's funding uh, what's going on here has actually been buying properties, uh, both down south and up north, and handing them over. Now, in many, many cases, in far too many cases, these were highly productive properties that have now been turned into a lifestyle uh, operation for the people that are living there, and they're not producing. Um, in some situations, there have been some appalling outcomes with lack of, of animal welfare and, and thousands of head of cattle have perished because of the inability of the people that have been handed the property to, to actually care for the animals in the way they should. And then in, in a lot of cases, there's subleasing going on. So this goes back to more traditional people next door or whatever to, to sublease the property just to get some value from it. 
But you know, the, the city people are being hoodwinked into thinking that Mabo and the decision, the land rights issue that went with it, was a wonderful thing. It's just about strangled development in so many areas of Western Australia. And now all of a sudden, we now have this, this issue that the state government has, has, has drummed up, uh, which is the Aboriginal Cultural and Heritage Act. And, and um, I think the, the station people, the parcel people who lease their land, have probably been living the nightmare for a very long time. But where I am on what we call freehold, um, I don't think that anyone really thought this could happen. And it has. And uh, two things have happened here. A very cunningly conceived piece of legislation has been brewed in the bowels of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and a whole lot of Indigenous people there that and supporters that think it's a great idea. But most of us didn't even see it coming. You know, the farming community had no idea it was coming. And now all of a sudden, as of the 1st of July, we have an act that we have to comply with. And that's been the biggest fight I've been having up until the last, well, even now, right in the middle of it. Tony, your current premier, I think that's the term you use in Australia, Roger Cook, he's, if I look at his background and I look at his, his wife is the curator of the Art Gallery of Western Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, she manages that collection. And the moment I opened that website, trying to get a, get a bit of a handle on the guy, the website begins with virtue signaling. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the storytellers and the owners of this land and and pay homage to the ancestors and elders. Sovereignty was never ceded. Why are all your Australian websites suddenly, and I'm seeing it in New Zealand websites also now, but literally I can't open any Aussie website without this. It seems yeah. like it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Uh, just, but I, I said there's a madness sweeping over our country right now. And in the last 12 months, every ABC journalist announces what country they're on. Um, we have this nations thing that they keep talking about, Aboriginal nations. They're not nations, they're tribes. I know what a nation looks like and so do most thinking people. They are, they're tribes. I don't mean it insultingly. I'm just basically stating a fact here. They're tribes. And, and there's another thing going on, which is the creation uh, of a belief that the Indigenous people lived in great harmony uh, before the white man came, that it was a perfect society and all we ever did was upend it and destroy it. Now, we're seeing on television, everyone's an auntie, everybody's an uncle, this great happy society. The stories I hear from people that are living out in the bush is they're pretty pretty warlike people. They, they defended their own patch extremely well, um, but they didn't give much. Uh, the welcome to country nonsense that we go on with here is exactly that. Uh, I have been told that up in Geraldton in about 1975, I believe, one of our rather well-known entertainers uh, was prevailed upon because, uh, you know, your lot had come over and you, you, you'd done the haka and, and uh, as a welcome, and we had to have something to, to, to match that, and so we had this welcome to the country. Now it seems to be an obligatory thing that every single event, everywhere you go, you have to have a welcome to country. And if it was a simple thing, uh, and I'd still object to that, but it's not, you know, the people that come to do Welcome to Country uh, for the big corporates, they get paid in the many, many thousands of dollars. And instead of them just standing up and saying, I'd like to be welcome to my country, it can go on for half an hour. And it's it's a concoction, it's an invention, but our school children are being uh, inundated with this, they're being indoctrinated. Um, it's going to be very hard to make this generation coming through the education system to understand what it's really like. And, and this goddamn welcome to country, we don't do it. We flatly refuse to do that. And I've now assumed the position where if I'm in any, any, any function or where we have that, I'll stand up and turn my back. 
I'm not going to put up with it. It's wrong. And I wish that more Australians would have the courage to say, to call them out, to just simply say, we have an issue with Indigenous people in our country that needs to be resolved. It has to be resolved. Education, health, it has to be resolved. But not this bloody virtue signalling that's going on. This is a concoction. Don and I have often spoken about this. We have these initiatives called DEI, Diversity, Equity, and you know, inclusion, they've added one more B to it, belonging to it. And all companies out here are doing this. So I find myself shaking my head when, when you were speaking, Tony, rather vigorously. And we seem to have our own version of this cultural, you know, struggle that they've suddenly aroused the Marxists out here. But coming back to the laws that have now your Aboriginal cultural heritage laws that have been passed on 1st of July, I think they're active. They're active now. They are, as of last Saturday, yes. So it seems that the Labour government has very conveniently taken care of the majority of its voters. Anyone having a holding of less than 1,100 square metres, you're fine. You're exempt. That's it. They looked after their own own They they looked after their own voting base, but uh, farmers are under the hammer. How how bad is it right now in terms of what... How onerous is it, do you think? I I, I met with the minister and we've been trying to explain to them that that we didn't believe they were ready to implement it anyway, even if they did. And uh, we had a victory uh, on the eve of the promulgation of the the legislation. And the the Premier actually said, uh, we will form a a working group, an implementation group. The first meeting will be next Monday. And a whole bunch of of people that uh, are affected will be part of that group. And also... Uh, it will be lightly enforced, were his words. Now, we don't know what that means. It doesn't mean that, that uh, you might not get fined. We don't know what lightly enforced actually means. But this working group, this is cunning. This is when if you don't have a solution to a problem or you don't want to be the one that's called out for making the decision, you form a committee. Then you hand the, the workings to the committee and you, you, you allow them to work their way through it. You make damn certain you, you organise the right people on the committee so you get the result that you're aiming for at the end. Then you don't have to accept the responsibility at the end of the day because you can then say the committee told us what to do. So we have a member of our association who will be attending the first meeting on Monday. I'm not going. I reserve the right to stand on the outside and give them a kicking because I think they deserve as much as we can give them because they look what they've done to us. This is this is freehold land. It, it's we have a slightly different term here. It's called fee simple, but. I, We've been here for a long, long time, seven generations on this farm, and uh, we've cleared it, we cared for it, we nurtured it, we looked after it, we pay the rates on it. Now, all of a sudden, I have to seek permission from people I don't even know, local Indigenous people, to come onto my farm at a fee, and, and the fee gets it, it escalates very quickly, to determine whether some part of my farm may have Aboriginal and cultural heritage significance. Now, there's no way in the world that any of the people I know are going to destroy a site that is clearly a significant ceremonial site. Mm. But there are words like um, landscapes, uh, songs, woggles in creeks. It's such an unbelievably um, diverse area in which they're working. And they can come out here at my request. I have to ask them to come to the property if they're willing to come. And then they can wander all over my property, determining whether in some way, some part of my operation intersects with Aboriginal culture and heritage. Now, I would only ask them here if I was going to do something that was uh, not a normal practice. We were allowed to plant a crop. We're allowed to do like for like is the phrase they use. 
But we don't do like for like. You know, we're always putting up a fence here, taking a fence down there, filling in a gully, cleaning up some rocks, putting down a dam, putting in a trough, putting in a set of sheep yards, putting up a shed. We're always doing stuff that's not like for like. So the minute that, that I'm about to do something that is not totally like for like, and I do what's called due diligence, and a lot of us are very lost as to what that means, then, then we will determine whether it's a tier one, tier two, or tier three activity. God help you if it's a tier three activity because that gets really, really complex and expensive. But even tier one, you need to be very careful because it's all in the interpretation. It just depends on how they interpret what you're doing. The fees yeah. are not cheap, are they? For your uh, local ACH service, you call them locks. They are talking about $160, $180 an hour out here. And, and there's no time frame on that. Um, and depending on where you are, uh, if you're a bit isolated, uh, then there's traveling involved, then there's meals involved, then there's accommodation involved, and there's no time frame on it. You can't actually say, well, what's it going to cost? You know, at the end of the day, they'll come and they'll determine what they want to determine and 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 no cost. And most of all, um, you aren't really able to contest this. You know, it's said to be improper to question who's coming out. And and you know, if if the, if the person, well, put it this way, the tribes didn't move around very much. So local is local. It has to be local. You can't get someone from 20 or 30 kilometres away to come on onto your property. It has to be someone who's local. Now, where I come from, there are not a lot of those people there, but they are incorporated into our town. They're, they're part of the footy team, hockey team, whatever. They are local people. And you put them in a hell of a situation because they're the only ones, the local ones, that can actually determine whether they have any memory of anything being on anyone's property. But they will go to a farm and immediately money will need to change hands. There will be decisions taken that, that they will have to have ownership of. And I don't know whether Roger Cook's in any way contemplated the amount of friction that this might create in a town where you know, hopefully everyone is getting on well and, and you know, mixing in and being part of that community. It's it's sort of separate. It's setting a, a group of people aside from mainstream society and then giving them powers uh, to interrupt what we've always done in the past. And, and this will not be good for the way that communities interact. When when I saw um, words like co-design uh, as part of your planning, I immediately thought of New Zealand's uh, collaborative process, as it's called here, and we've got co-governance being talked about where um, Maori will have power of veto uh, they'll have 50% of the new water regimes that we're going to have, three waters or 10 waters, it's called, and they will have um, 50% of the vote plus the power of veto. Um, unbelievable. You've got a long way to go to get to that, but you can see how divisive the creep will be just from and our Donald, it might happen more, It might happen more quickly than you even know. But I think one of the things that needs to be said here is that there's an enormous transfer of wealth going on in this country today. Um, some of it's from the mining companies, but also there are people that are su substantially subsidising what's happening in our country. There's a, a real disconnect from those that want something for nothing, and there's a real lack of any understanding that if you've got something for free, it's probably because somebody else worked for it. And, and you can't just keep on demanding more and more. Money doesn't come out of a hole in the ground or out of the cloud. It comes from people that pay taxes. And the minute you start penalising the wealth creators, the people that actually generate wealth, as soon as you start penalising them, then you diminish the capacity of governments to actually put in place the sorts of services that the welfare lobby are yelling their heads off for. And I just watch on television again and again, all these little lobby groups 
God knows where some of them come from. They all want the government to fund their cause. You'll very rarely see anybody stand up and say, I've got a great idea that'll make some money for us. Everybody just wants something for nothing without considering that we actually have to do something to get that money in the first place. Yes, same here. And, you know, in the end, the carcass uh, is going to be eaten by the parasite. So, uh, you know, in the end, there will be nothing left. Uh, and and then we'll have to reform and, and you know, have a have a reset uh, to coin that phrase that I don't like. But, you know, that's... Um, that's not far away if if they don't back off because yes. actually I have the statement that uh, everything has a derivation as uh, it's everything we enjoy its derivation is on the harvest of from the environment whether it's the land the sea or the scenery and in your state it's it's the land uh, that's giving up most for everybody's well being to use that word that I don't really like either but um, you know why is it that we can't get that understanding that you know you can. The host is being eaten alive um, by by the by the parasite, and I I don't know when we can turn that around, but it seems to have gotten uh, a lot of traction under the last three to five years, especially. Would that be fair in Western Australia? It certainly is. Oh, I don't look. There's there's no doubt. It's 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 getting worse at an accelerating rate. And look, I've been a sheep farmer all my all my life. And we always have blowflies at certain times of the year that, that, that strike sheep. And uh, the end result is, is not a happy happy result. When a sheep gets fly struck, the ultimate thing will be death. Nothing gives you more satisfaction than catching that sheep, using a pair of dagging shears to clean it up around the breach, and then we put the blowfly treatment on them and watch the bastard squirm. And then the sheep runs away, ready to have another life. It's Look, you've just nailed it. Parasites are parasites. And... Uh, Look, as a, as a broad society, we need to be able to look after those that, um, that need a bit of help. But there's got to be a qualification somewhere. There's got to be some point where you say, uh, we give you a little lift, but the floodgates aren't open to give you every damn thing that you want for free. And there's, and sorry, sorry, Jasper, uh, for interrupting. There's only one political party in New Zealand that's even remotely close to that now. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there was even the centre could be relied on to talk like that. Everyone's too scared to talk like too that scared. now. Too and, and of course, we've got mainstream media eating uh, eating these people that are trying to be decent alive because they've only got to say one word out of line and they're, they're nailed. I mean, um, I, I've listened to some alternate media from from yourself on this um, this ACH Act, and it's like there's nothing to see here. What's Tony on about? And they're, full, <laughs> they're full, full of platitudes. And that's what we get here as well. Nothing to see here. There's only only a couple of crazies like Don and Tony firing their shots. Um, Don, I, there's something really subliminal here that people don't know. Um, socialism is the, is the friendly side of communism. It's as simple as that. There are a lot of socialists that wouldn't end up being communists, but that's what they are intrinsically. They, they want everything. They want everyone's wealth. They want to redistribute it. Indigenous society in Australia is probably the most perfect communist system that there's ever been. They didn't own property. They shared everything. Um, and I'm not, not saying this is a criticism, but that's what it was. And so there's where the natural affinity lies between the Indigenous population of Australia and the Labor Party. They're connected at the hip through this, this view on, on property ownership. Um, so what, what we see here is, is the gradual, creeping, crawling socialist you know, event that's overtaking all of us. And it's beholden upon people like myself and others to stand their foot on the ground and say, no, we know exactly what's going on here. And the AHC is not so much about preserving Indigenous cultural sites. It's about 
actually gaining control over land and disempowering the people that own it. And a lot of the people that I hold in high regard know this, and we've had this conversation on a number of occasions. The simple thing here with regard to these sites, the state government has got $77 million to throw in, and I think they put $17.5 million aside a bit before that, and there will need to be more. That is a lot of money. So what you might do is go to these local larks, if you want to call them that, form these little groups, then tell them, you are the local knowledge holders. It is not beholden upon the farming community to invite you and pay you to go onto their properties. You sit down today and you work out, you tell us where they are, get a map, work out where they are and, and, and allow it to be contestable and put your name to it so we know exactly who has actually nominated this site as what it is. But it ought not to be, it should, shouldn't be required to be contested by the farming community. The local Indigenous people, if they are elders and if they have the knowledge, then they should actually designate these sites and not this myriad of bloody regulations and things that see someone like myself. There's a bulldozing contract rang out yesterday. It's a million-dollar dozer with, with the ancillary gear that goes with it. He's parked in a paddock about 20 kilometres from here and he doesn't know what to do. And these so-called larks, they were never in place. So I think when the state government backed off, they probably breathed a sigh of relief too because it was, the structure is not there to in any way deal with the legislation that they enacted last Saturday. And that's our, that's how farcical the situation is that we're in. But it's it's just so wrong that, that people that are normally going about their business suddenly have to stop uh, and try and work out what they might be liable for, what it might cost them in the future, and whether they should go ahead or whether they should accept the fact they're going to lose a lot of money and sit down and do nothing. It's crazy. Looking at uh, the Western Australia government's budget, the recent budget, uh, Tony, it seems that the parasites have taken their pound of flesh. It says that they anticipate higher goods and services revenue up $344 million, largely as a result of uh, some sports trust as well as Higher fees and charges for the Department of Planning, Land and <laughs> Heritage, up to $86 million associated with the uh, Aboriginal Cultural Heritage uh, Act, expecting this is the expected cost recovery for the administration and to fund these services. So is it like, you know, uh, providing a noose for your own oh, neck look, I, and paying yeah, I, for it as well? I'm glad you picked up on that because most people don't know that. They don't know there's a line item there that designates how much money they're going to squeeze, squeeze out of those of us uh, that are going to have to comply. Now, a lot of those companies, or people that might comply, might be mining companies and they might have deeper pockets. But most of the people I represent are family shows. And uh, you know, whatever you take off their bottom line comes off their income. And a lot of them are not doing all that well at all. So, um, you know, you, you hit them hard. And it's not recoverable. Um, but the other thing that you made an interesting point about, um, this Labor government we've got in power in WA right now, they have been so lucky. You know, the mineral uh, boom that's going on in our state, the royalties that are flooding down from up north, um, you know, they couldn't believe their good fortune because they've done nothing to earn it. They've just sat there and the royalties keep pouring in. And then there's another aspect to it too. This fly-in, fly-out workforce that, that goes up north um, they are extremely well paid, massively well paid. And you can almost hear the whoopee as they get off the aeroplanes in Perth because we are off to town to spend that money. And so while they're spending it, um, the GST is, is is coming off the top and that, that goes to the federal government. Um, and, and then the, there's another layer too because you've got the royalties coming in, you've got the workers coming down here with all the money, throwing it around the place. Then you've got the incredible profits being made by the companies that are building the infrastructure up there, carting up the fuel and taking up the steel and, and building all the plants. Um, 
we've just got dead lucky over here and it's allowed some of the most appalling government you could ever imagine to be inflicted upon little people that are running a business and trying to earn a living and and remain independent. And there's Do a lot you have of an opposition at all? Sorry, you don't have an opposition <laughs> at all. That is, you know, perhaps <laughs> thinking, I don't know. <laughs> they got clobbered, not the last election, the election before. And so uh, Mr McGowan came to power and he did all great things with COVID. He shut the borders and everybody felt secure and everyone thought that Mr McGowan was the best thing since sliced bread and he was wonderful and whatever and he started spending all this free money that started coming down and we got a bigger slice of the GST for the federal government and things were whoopie do. So then we had another election, utter landslide. I think the opposition parties could meet in the, in the back of a combi van at the moment. Um, I know most of them and, and they're decent people. but. For, for whatever reason, the population of Australia has put in place what's nothing more than a dictatorship. They can do what they like. Uh, there's no holding them back. And, and you know, for a long time, the press was so enamoured with them that even if a, there was a small murmur of discontent from the remnants of our Conservative parties here, they didn't get heard. So um, as a lobby group, we've always been able to work with oppositions and whatever, and we, we've, we've cut deals all over the place and usually to the benefit of our members. But we're being ignored right now because they can just give us the greatest thrashing of all time and, and there's not much we can do about it. And I'd just like to think that maybe the population of West Australia might wake up to the fact that not having an, an effective opposition isn't really such a bright idea after all. No, and it, it did feel like the, the guy that was your opposition leader leading into the last election got given the hospital pass from hell because he um, looked like he <laughs> he looked like he had no idea how to handle the situation. No, he got thrashed. no. No, and and no. the good thing about Western Australia, um, I could say, is it's full of Kiwis. Uh, I've got lots of family over that way and lots of people I know. So um, they they love Western Australia. So you are in, um, in a state that uh, has benefited a lot of Kiwis and especially of Maori origin. They've gone there and gone to the mines and you're right. They get off the plane. Yeah. They do that fly and fly up. They come south and, oh, gosh, they love speaking. No, no, I, I'm going to tell you a little story here. The welfare that's available to Indigenous is is dazzling. You know, these guys know every trick in the book. They know where the money is to be had. And, and it's very rarely that you'll find um, young Indigenous fellows actually wanting to work. Uh, some are in the workforce, and I take my hat off to them, but it has been the greatest disincentive uh, to get these kids uh, into work. We're desperately short of labour, and, and they are a labour force that we should be able to use. But we had a Minister of Agriculture who retired recently and, and she was always trying to, to generate a course, you know, teach these guys how to ride a horse or how to shear or work in a shed hand, a shed hand's in a shearing shed. And, and Alana and I, we were sparring partners. Um, she, she called me bad, Tony, and we got on in a fashion, but um, she didn't like me very much. So uh, she started up this Indigenous shearing course up at um, Geraldton and, and uh, I asked her another occasion how it was going and she said, oh, it's early days yet. And so I'd actually had a, a, a shearing team out working in our shed, four-stand shed, um, but it was on a Sunday. And, and the, the crowd that turned up, it was marvellous. Mum, dad, kids, uncles, aunts, nephews, kids running around the shearing shed. It, it was great. So I took a photograph of the whole lot of them on the board, including my son, and it was a happy photograph. And I showed it to Alana and I said, here's your Indigenous. This is your Indigenous shearing team. Look at them. Whoa, look at them. All from New Zealand, the whole damn lot of them. And they were. That's <laughs> uh, a good story. It's happy a happy good story. crew. Happy crew. Work on a Sunday, which you're not supposed to do over here, but uh, the family were there. And it, it's a great photograph. 
Um, but there weren't any Australian Indigenous there, which was a bit sad, actually. I can honestly say I don't think in all my time of shearing sheep I've ever had an Australian in my shed or sheds and, around and, here. And this is the issue. This is exactly the issue. Yeah. yeah. We've we've created a situation where we're drowning them in welfare and, and it's not to their benefit. It just isn't. Um, you can't have kids growing up on country, because that's the big phrase here, on country, and think they've got a future. And and a lady up at Halls Creek on television about three weeks ago, she said, my boys have to leave home. They've got to go away and get an education to have any chance in life. And I thought, you little ripper. Here's one Indigenous lady who understands what it's about. But to have kids growing up on on country, unable to to perform those basic arithmetic and and, and, uh, and English, they're destined to a life of, of you know, that falls so far short. And this puts them on the wrong side of the gap. And it's it's imperative that that um, that we bring them into our society and, and educate them, and, and to think we're helping them by allowing them to live on country, um, it doesn't work that way. So has Jacinta Price um, got a good uh, good uh, following in your state, or is she? I think she's voice? got she's got a terrific following, and she's a she's an amazing lady. You know, to have the courage to stand up and say what she's saying in the face of the rest of the industry that would vilify her given half a chance. And I, I read some of her life story a while ago, and boy, oh, boy, has she been through it. She has lived the whole shooting match. She knows everything about you know, what's right and what's wrong. And we start talking about you know, people getting buildings at home, kids getting buildings, um, murders, uh, just a whole lot of stuff that, that if the ordinary person in the street in Australia actually knew this and it would open their mind up enough to want to go and look for it and read it, they'd realise the concept of this voice isn't going to solve anything. Because the reality of life out in the bush for most Indigenous people isn't that flash. And, and it's just, it's beholden upon us today not to, to pass the voice, which is just going to be pure tokenism, but to actually get governments to, to do something, just do some damn thing. We've had, we've had long enough, you know, we've, we've had way, way long enough. And, and to find ourselves in the situation today and to think that we'll have a voice. You know, Linda Burney made a, a, an address at the National Press Club day before yesterday, and she prattled on as if, once we've got the voice, everything will be fixed. It'll be it'll be away and running. And Linda, I'm sorry, $100 million a day, and, and this is the situation we find ourselves in. Don't look at us. Look at yourselves because, you know, look, there's 22 – it was on ABC News, I believe, what they had to say, 22,000 Indigenous children not living with their parents today. Now, that's not the problem of white Australians. They've got their elders. They've got their tribal structure. They've got the people there that they say want to administer this and come to government and tell government what's required – that's outrageous. You know, that says there's a fundamental issue that's wrong there, that, that these people either need to address themselves or go to someone else that might help them address it and get on top of it. Because that for that many kids to be not living with their parents, I, I just, you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, this, this is on the well, ABC well, News. Well, and, and uh, you know, every... Western country seems to have this, the breakdown of the family unit. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound ill precious about it, but it's uh, it's a failure. And it's it's almost, it's encouraged. Uh, it seems to be it's encouraged over here more than discouraged. Break down the family unit, have dad not a, nowhere, to be, nowhere to be found, um, have have all sorts of parenting going on but between pillar and post, you know, granddad, grandma, and, uh, and, and daycare. And... The children um, are lost. They don't really have the the sort of father and mother figure that they need to have. So, I, it's not it's not uncommon, uh, Tony, and it's it saddens me that that's where we are. But to me, 
it's part of that um yeah we talked about sort of cultural marxism earlier marxism it's part, it's part of it it's part of it to break down the institutions that we once took as sacrosanct gone uh, a bit like property rights uh, i know you're a big property rights man um i am too um uh, break down the property right that talks about that and something i've read online today um property rights the way we think they should be don't exist anymore it was in your state i read someone had said that sort of property rights uh aren't aren't necessarily the way you understand them now i'm sorry property rights have got one understanding and that's what they are <laughs> what they are uh, don't i yeah yep. you You've gone where I was going to go. You, you said it. That's the absolute truth of it. There's a, a, there's a very strong, um, how do you say it? Well, part of the doctrine of socialism is the breakdown of all of those structures, the family and, and all of those things that, that we normally believe. But look, in, in 1988, um, Bob Hawke, who is a great champion of the downtrodden, gave an address uh, in the what was called the Bicentennial Address, and, and he used two phrases, and, and if I can just quote them, he said, there will be no hierarchy of descent and no privilege of origin. Now, they were very, very meaningful things to say, and Tony Abbott made them on television last night in an interview on ABC television. They should underpin where we are because right now we are being told that there is a hierarchy of descent and there is a privilege of origin. And it flies in total contravention to what he had to say. And in those few words, he summed up the whole issue of where we are with this and by not not adhering to what he had to say, we're just sowing the seeds of a great sense of anger and fury because there's no doubt that this fellow Thomas Mayo and, and others have a whole different view of where the vo voice may take us to. And it, it's it's about claiming back what they consider to be their heritage. And, and look, civilizations throughout eternity have conquered one another. This is what, what's happened in Australia is not unusual. This, this happens all around the world. And from the ashes of the last civilization arise the new one. For us to be complicit in dragging our, our achievements backwards, it's absurd. You know, we need to welcome them to come forward into our society, not 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 hold them up as, as the paradigm of where we need to be. Yep, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I was listening to you both speak about the breakdown of the family structure. Uh, fathers have been replaced by paychecks to a very large extent. I've, I'll never condone staying in a bad marriage, but. I have seen it very, very plainly. But for listeners, uh, we've referred to the term, the voice. This is what Australia is pushing right now about a constitutionally enshrined Aboriginal voice. And I can't help, Don, I don't know if you see the parallel between our co-governance and the voice. There. And Tony, there will be a referendum on that one. And it's, right now, they, have a, I they see... haven't nominated the date, but towards the end of the year, probably November, December, uh, there will be a, a referendum to change the the constitution. And, and what Jacinda Price would say is, we're all Australians. We're all equal Australians. How wrong is it for one tiny group to have this unbelievably uh, strong access to government at the highest level? You know, it, it's it's wrong. We're we're all equal, and the sooner we recognise that but not to say that this group of people that represent a very, very small percentage of our population could have access at the level that they do. And you know, why not Why not a voice for the Italian migrants? Why not a voice for the Greek migrants? Why not a voice for the Catholics? Right? It, it, it is just so wrong and it's being sold in such a way that people think it would be a cure for a lot of the problems that are out there. And I'd suggest that as time goes by, if it gets up, if uh, we'll look back and say, well, that didn't work very well. 
Well, Tony, bit of advice. Just look at New Zealand for exhibit number one number one as to where you will go. You're not going to be there even if the re- referendum gets up. You're, you've still got a long way to go to get where we are because we are doing mass reparations. We're giving mass massive rights to um, to Maori uh, through through the the um, voting rights that I talked about before. Uh, the paychecks are significant. And New Zealanders seem to be blasé about it. And it all comes back to a, a finding by a judge. In fact, it wasn't the finding. He just made a glib, seemed to be a glib throwaway line. He talked about the Treaty of Waikiki, which is 1840 signed, was a partnership. Or he used the word partner or partnership. And ever since that came into the media's hand, all hell has broken loose and, you know, tribunal after tribunal finding uh it's always one-way traffic it's always one way and of course there's the elite end of town the top end of town driving their black range rovers and um and uh and in the latest sharp suits all running this agenda and they're being allowed to uh get away with it and of course people like jasper and i we talk like this and we we're being quite brazen apparently yeah we're outlandish if 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 this discussion <laughs> hits their ears, we're we're just the worst um, of the worst, and yet no one. It doesn't appear there's many people brave enough to to call it for what it is. So, I think you're going to be, at least, even if the voice gets up, and I don't think it will, by the way. But if it did, I would suggest you are still light years behind New Zealand. So, it's a small comfort. It's a small comfort. I, <laughs> I not, look. There's a lady, she's a Russian lady, and she died quite a long time ago, but she wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. And there's a society, the Rand Society, and the book's available, and I'd ask anyone that is even faintly interested, because I buy copies of it and I hand it out all over the place, it is the blueprint. It's the Mm -hmm. blueprint of what's happening in the world today. And uh, you realise just what a sad end it will take us to. But, But most of all, I think the saddest thing is, the potential was there to be so much better for all of us. And we just threw that potential out the window on the altar of greed and power. Well, um, that's that seems to be how it is. Uh, I agree. And of course, we've got, and we, I didn't think we'd go there, go there tonight uh, on this interview, but you know, we've got uh, the build back better slogans. We've got the just transitions. We've got the well-being. We've got all these words that came out of um, the mouths of our prime minister that your prime minister has used. Um, and it seems some of your liberal party uh, subscribe to the, the WEF agendas as well and UN agendas. Why have we been so blasé about those agendas as well? Because we have politicians who are in denial that there's any connections with especially the WEF. We clearly know there's connections with the UN. But we even have found that some of our lead trade negotiators have been on committees of the WEF. So to be told that they're not close is just weird. No, no. Look, it starts in school, and it probably started five, six, ten generations ago, but the school teachers start feeding the kids on this bloody claptrap, and then some of those students go to university and the university student uh, teachers and professors feed them on more of it, and it turns into just a tighter and tighter circle until in the end the whole education system is so based on on the views of the left, and you know, I've got family members that have been through that, and, and they are so inured in this whole socialist nonsense that it's almost impossible to drag them away from it. 
um, it's it's this sort of thing that all wealth is to be shared, and uh, and and some of them make a lot of money, so they don't mind sharing a fair bit of what they've got. But the funny part about most socialists is that they're dead keen to share someone else's wealth, but they're not usually that keen to share their own. They, they, they want to hang on to that bit. Um, but you know, it's so difficult to get kids out of university and actually have to get them to start thinking again because the whole of that cycle, it just brainwashes them into a belief that what you're talking about, all these UN stuff and, and you know, just so much of what, what society is led to believe is the way forward is rubbish. So... Let's move off social policy for a moment, although it'll probably link. Net zero, 2050. Western Australia, is it donkey deep in that uh, sort of stuff? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah. Is, there, is there all this climate anxiety amongst uh, young people? Oh, look, the, the whole climate anxiety thing is, you know, is rampant. Um, the issue of our reef, the Great Barrier Reef, you know, there's, there's protests up and down the main street of Sydney and Melbourne and, and many other places because there's this quaint belief that there's something in Australia we can do, something we can do that will save the reef. The issues with the reef are China and India and developing nations around the world that don't have our standard of living. And, and there's nothing we can do that will make any difference. If, if they're building 20 or 30 coal-fired power stations in China as we speak, and India as well, then nothing we're going to do will actually solve the issue. But our, our leader of the opposition over here, Peter Dutton, made a comment this morning that, that I, I totally adhere to, um, the cost of building the infrastructure to, to move the power from where green power can be generated, and photovoltaics is the main one, but probably wind as well, we are going to need thousands and thousands of kilometres of high tensile wires with big galvanised towers and wire and all the rest of it to get that power. Look, when a coal-fired power station comes to the end of its life, knock it down and bang a little, little nuclear plant, plant there. Just put it there. The world is generating staggering amounts of nuclear power. Um, why do we in Australia feel so precious that we don't have to do that? Uh, you've got rising power prices all over Australia. Fuel prices are, you know, are high, probably perhaps coming down. But in, in every way, cheap power is what our society needs to be based on. And these small modular nuclear power stations, they can do everything we need and the pollution will be zero. And yet, oh, no, we can't do that. We've got to go photovoltaic and with all of the massive costs involved in that, Yep, it's virtue signalling. There's no doubt about that, and uh, we agree. Yeah. I'd agree. Uh, I know about uh, the transmission costs. Yeah, uh, you know, to to establish that transmission, let alone transmission losses. So if yeah, you can ge yeah, generate yeah. right where the need is, it's a whole lot smarter. So a uh, little nuclear power plant outside Perth, and another one outside Adelaide, and another one outside Melbourne and Sydney might just help quite a bit. And I remember when we were saying that we wouldn't allow nuclear powered ships into yeah. our ports. Uh, that 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 argument sort of fizzled. I've been inside a nuclear powered ship about thirty kilometres from Perth. I've been inside one. So <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Hey, and another thing. Oh, sorry, Jasper. Oh. Uh, so yesterday here, I went out to a one of these. Uh, you know, we have elections coming up. So ACT Party, which is supposed to be supposed to be one of the saner ones. So the candidate he openly admitted that. Yep. It is completely true that if New Zealand tomorrow disappeared from the face of the earth without a trace, our emissions are that insignificant. You know, it doesn't well, matter. And he's a farmer himself. But then yeah, you go to yeah, their website yeah. and it says, ACT is committed to New Zealand doing its part for climate. I'm like, what gives? I come from India, the land of the sacred cow. Depending on which government website you open which day, we have something like 400 
to 600 million cows. You try telling an uneducated farmer there that your cows are changing the world's climate. You'll be laughed out of the bloody place. Yes, of course. Yet of course. heavier. Yeah, heavier. Yeah. So, so look, the same would apply to Australia, I think, with the amount of emissions that we actually uh, are emitting. But it's interesting. Um, we feed about 25 million Australians and 50 over 50 million people around the world. So part of our emissions is actually producing the food for, for another 50 million people. So we're, we're clobbered with that one. There's also the cost of digging out all the iron and the coal and stuff that we dig out. So we're, we're clobbered with the emissions from there as well. And then on top of that, we're, our second largest by value export is actually coal. And so we're so sanctimonious that we, we want to close in every coal-fired power station in Australia, but we're shipping out sort of millions and millions of tonnes of coal to be burned in other places in the world. Somehow or another, I, I just can't quite figure out why people can't join the dots. Oh, it's, it must make you feel so good, Tony. It must make you feel so good. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you, I don't think Australian farmers have been told they're going to ta- tax the belch and the burps of cows and sheep yet, have you? Look, our cattle industry is turning itself inside out right now, trying to get to zero uh, 2030, I think. Now, I don't know how they're going to do that. I I don't understand the mechanism. There is a seaweed extract that can be put into the diet of of cattle to stop them producing as much methane, and and that's doable uh, in a dairy or in a feedlot where you've got access to the cattle and they've got access to fodder. I don't know what you do with a cow roaming around in the Pilbara somewhere. I I think that's um, that's going to go the way it's going to go. Look, out there, there's, there's wildlife doing it too. Well, we'll send you some data that shows you you don't have to do anything. So you know, make sure the PGA just stands tall against any of this nonsense because in New Zealand right now, we have farmer groups who have said we've got to do something because, you know, we're, we're being uh, knocked around pillar to post in the media. We've just got to do something. We've got to appease Greenpeace. We should pay a little tax. We should pay a little tax. We should also know your number so we could have all the clipboarded, um, bespectable, bespectacled um, uh, administrators come around to your farms and uh, do the compliance. We're we're in that deep at the moment. But so all I'd say to you, Tony, is stay staunch. Don't allow anyone near near your place doing that measurement. Certainly, uh, planning on standing staunch. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And so, a couple more things. You've got a national identification scheme in your um in your sheep and sheep anyway, cattle I assume as well. Um, how's that going? Because I know it created serious tension here when it came in about oh, 2010, and it's still not working properly. It's called National Animal Identification and Tracing yeah, here. Yeah. And well, it's all low-frequency low EIT tags for yeah, cattle, no, 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 cattle I, and I, deer. Yeah, no, all, all over it. Um, the, the sheep debate, we've lost that. It seems as though the powers that be are going to inflict it upon us. Um, it sounds simple. It sounds easy. Um we often buy stock in uh, to finish, to fatten, and they will be bought out of sale yards, uh, just odd pen loads. We, we could have a consignment of sheep turn up here with maybe, on, on a, say, a, a B-double. There might be 30 or 40 different lines of sheep on that truck, and we actually have to scan every one of those sheep as it comes on a property, and then we have to download the data. Um, we had a system here where uh, each age of sheep got a colour tag in it indicating that the age if we bought an animal in and or even bred on our own farm, we put a tag in its ear that indicated that it had a n- name and a number on it, which was our form of identification. Um, 
I thought that was working fairly well, but in the way that the IPA is saying we're being overregulated, we, we've we've lost this one, the, you know, the the boffins, and there will need to be a department in Perth. There'll need to be a building. There'll need to be computers, and there'll need to be a structure to fine fine all of those of us that don't do it the right way. Um, yeah, another one we lost. Exhibit New Zealand, have a look at us. You know, you said you did look at us. Uh, well, actually, from memory. Our input in about 2010 from Federated Farmers New Zealand was wrong technology, um, uh, didn't cover all species, so sheep aren't involved yet. Uh, there's a whole lot of things, but the wrong technology, it was low frequency tags uh, when apparently high frequency um, uh, EID, uh, ID stuff is available, uh, technology is available. And apparently that is so much more simple than doing each animal one by one. You can just scan around the the the, uh, the yard and get the whole lot. Okay, right. And so right. and so that makes it a whole lot simpler. But still, it's yes. a compliance. Still a compliance. Well, I went to to a meeting with the previous direct, director general of agriculture. Now, this is the the top man below the minister, public servant. And uh, I put a pair of electrician side cutters on the desk in front of him, and I said to him, Ralph, what are they? And he said, Well, side cutters. No, they're not. They're ownership adjusters. They're ownership adjusters. <laughs> You can take a tag out. <laughs> Gosh. Anyway, look. Um, you know, yeah. They can devise all these schemes. And, of course, the other one that, uh, at that time it was, oh, we, we'll be able to count our emissions because we'll know exactly where each animal is. So that will be – it was sort of uh, subversion tactics. They didn't say that at the outset, but it was clear in the bowels of their their, their paperwork that was part of the, part of the plan. So let's talk about something else that's a hoary chestnut in uh, Western Australia, and it has been in New Zealand, and it's live exports. Live exports, as I understand it, is absolutely fundamental to the economy of um, the agriculture sector in Western Australia. Uh, to me, it adds competition as well. Uh, you know, and, and of course, in New Zealand, we've sort of had the wings clipped of it. I, I like that extra spring, string to your bow, but it's a fundamental in your state, isn't it? John, it is. Um, it's now so magnificently well managed. You know, the, the, the trade, the Awasi incident was a really bad one. Uh, it wasn't in any way characteristic of the way the trade was conducted, but it was certainly a turning point. Um, the, the losses on on ships now are, are minuscule. You know, we 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 can't even match it on property. You know, the, the trade is squeaky clean. Uh, we are the policemen. We've got the highest standards in the world. Um, we set the benchmark all over the world. What's going on right now is despicable because the Labor government, clamouring to come to power, actually made a promise to a number of city inner city elites, the ones that are rocking the boat and causing all the problems, and they promised to ban the trade. And uh, it was purely to gain votes. It was done to gain seats, probably in Melbourne and Sydney, maybe a bit Adelaide, but it was just purely a cynical move to, to glean votes from people who knew nothing about the trade, but it just sounded good. They just banned the trade, end of story. So we've now had a, a, a huge series of meetings with a group that have covered the state to, to determine what the implications might be. And I think they found this to be far more complex than they ever thought it was. It's far more, the trade is far more embedded in what we do in the West than they had any idea. But a lot of farmers have been going to these meetings and putting in submissions and, and really doing a fantastic job advocating on front of the, to the front of the industry. But the issue lies with the Labor government and the power brokers. They're just counting the seats. They're just simply counting the seats. And if they could say that if we um, ban the trade, we'll keep these seats, if we allow it to continue, we'll lose these seats, 
and that might tip us out of government. You know, we need to bring extraordinary pressure to bear on some of the politicians that might then go back to their, to their masters and the Labor Party and say, this is going to hurt. If we keep going with this policy, this is going to hurt us electorally. And that that's the underbelly, and that's probably, I think, the only way that we'll get the this current Labor government to recognise that that to pursue the policy, it will hurt. And hurting them is the only thing that I actually understand. One other point I've just thought about um, that may be happening in your area is the bankability of a farm and farming enterprise being hindered by environmental uh, credential or quality assurance credentials by the banking institution. Are they putting are they putting a a premium or a, an extra cost on farmers that haven't ticked all the boxes, for, or are they giving perhaps I might say a rebate for those that are? I mean, because that's happening in New Zealand, where yeah. we're getting, and what would you would call, I, I, what what are they, Jasper? What would we call them? ESG. Are we? Are talking about ESG? Yeah, sort of ESG. Yeah. So you yeah. know, tick off the right boxes. You have companies like Nestle now putting pressure on our co-op Fonterra. It is that you know we need to have this diversity. We need to have these many people on boards and stuff like that. Stuff that is beyond just the financial. But, but I was also yeah, talking. No, no, no. I was also talking about the yeah. banking uh, banks as, as well, giving mm-hmm. discounted interest rates, Tony, all of this in the same. Green same loans really. and all of that. Yeah, yeah. green loans. Yeah. Look, I, I can't say I've seen a lot of that, but I wouldn't say for one moment that it might not be just around the corner. Um, look, this virtue signalling, um, we've seen big companies in Australia, Rio Tinto, um, BHP, West Farmers, um, make enormous contributions um, to the yes case within the, the this context of the referendum that's coming up, um, that's virtue signaling. It's done in their business, but they're trying to uh, say, look at us, how good we are. And I can really and truly see that, um, I think National Bank did something a while ago, uh, where they might quite readily say, well, we can carry favour with our voters if we just tell these farmers that we won't let them do this, we won't give them the money. Now, look, I think that it's starting to show. It's it's just beginning to be there. Um, And my retort to that it's been just be very careful. You know, we actually feed you and we feed you with some of the best food in the world and a massive variety of it. You know, we've been kicked from pillar to post by so many different groups in our society today, and each one of them has its own little vested interest and is giving us a hiding. Um, back off. You know, we, we do what we do with, with in the best way we can, and there are plenty of other causes, you know, if you really want to find a cause to go and sort of throw yourself at. But I just say to the broader community, just leave the farmers alone. They're doing a pretty good job. And, and they don't need to be put under pressure where, where they go to work in the morning wondering whether what they're doing has value. And there's there's a lot of that starting to creep in, that, that we've been told on so many different fronts that, that we're concerned about what you're doing and we don't like what you're doing and we will regulate you if we can. So this last week just gone out here, we had, I don't know what the mental health is doing there in the rural space, but in New Zealand, it is certainly suffering. And we've had the launch of a suicide prevention program not too far from me and all of this. And yet no one seems to think where this is heading. So they put a bit of a Band-Aid on that. And yet you have farmers who are, I, uh, for us, many farmers who are getting out, what they're doing is they're selling up big and they're selling it to pine trees. Because we are, at this point, I believe, the only country in the world that uh, allows 100% offsets via pines just planting blanket pines. So we are converting our prime pastoral land into pines, a complete travesty if I ever saw one. 
but uh, there seems to be absolutely nothing no nothing from wellington it's like money grows on trees in new zealand and that's where new zealand farmers are going at this point and i i i don't blame them the incentives have been screwed the money is probably done would i say twice as much as uh, at least can be it can be on certain country yep yeah yeah look there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the farming community here are feeling under pressure a huge mm. amount of pressure. There's all the normal pressure about bank loans and seasons and markets and whatever, but they're also feeling under enormous pressure. And uh, there's a protest coming up in about two weeks' time down south from here. I think that will be very, very well attended. I think I could turn on a protest if I put it out and about where we've got ten or 20,000 people come to Perth. The farming community have had enough. They're just sick of it. They're sick of being belted in every way because, as I said, you know, climate and weather um, and pricing, and that's we live with that. But when your society itself isn't supportive, when your financial institutions aren't supportive, um, it, it can very easily happen where someone might simply say, I'm done here, this is just too hard. And if an offer was made for big corporate to you know, carbon credits or whatever, I, I could see a lot of people, if the finances were good enough, just simply saying, I'm out of here, I'm done. You know, that's We've just been hit from too many different directions by too many different forces. Yeah, and so just I'm trying to see a bit of a point of difference uh, for from New Zealand's got a relatively dominant um, dairy industry player called Fonterra. It's probably about 80 to 85% of the, of the milk uh, in New Zealand. And, and it basically says if the government, sorry, if the government says jump, it jumps, it says how high and it ropes every farmer in. And now they'll despise me for saying that, but I've always said that Fonterra acts like the government for all farming. And it's easy to go to the government uh, or to go to one agency and and that's uh, then they spread their their desires through the through the machinery of that co-op. Has Western Australia got any really dominant processing in in any industry, or has it completely um, open markets? Has uh, yeah, you know, there's no uh, state trading enterprises. There's nothing like that. We actually had a state trading organisation controlling our lamb here for a while, and the PJ was very, very instrumental in destroying that. But you've always got the big supermarkets, you know, the Woolworths and the Coles. They set up their supply chains and they squeeze and they squeeze and they squeeze. Mm-hmm. That's where live export is such a, an outlet for us because they'll take in anything. They'll take old ewes, they'll take withers, they'll take lambs, they'll take anything. And, and when, the, when the buyers are buying the live export, and it's not happening at the moment because it's a hot period up there and it's, we shut down, when the buyers are buying, they're competing against the supermarkets and it brings in electricity into the auction system. So you know, our, our domestic meat consumption isn't that great. Export of boxed meat, well, it's it's fought with difficulty. Uh, and that's where the live export thing, as I said, is, is such a player because it brings a diversity into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll never forget uh, about... 15 years ago, a local processor said to me the best money he made was an old ewe um, processed, split in half uh, after it was blast frozen and sent to uh, India. And that's where he was making the most money. And I thought, gee, I'm giving prime lamb. You know, I was putting all that effort into getting this thing exactly right, peas in the pod, you know, 18, 20 Ks. And I, I forget at the time I was getting less than less than the price of an old U anyway, and of course that ebbs and flows. I understand that, but gee, the cost of doing the processing here is just it it just slowly eats you alive. And we've talked about this sort of in this interview how um, cost structures in our own countries 
you know, they just gnaw away and gnaw away until there's nothing. All the left. time, just just yep. chipping away, chipping away. And, but but and we looking, keep doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, what happened to our dairy industry in Fonterra, fairly big over east yeah. here? Yeah. Um, for a while there, bottled water was more expensive than milk. Sure. You know, this absolutely shitty way that the, the dairy farmers got treated, it, it it was excruciatingly painful to watch dairies just folding. Places that have been father and son and grandfather perhaps just shutting shop, but in, in the end, supply and demand you know, came into rule. And, and I, I guess that's just the marketplace readjusting and, and it has sorted it. But you asked me a question a minute ago. We actually had the thing called Australian Wheat Board. And the Australian Wheat Board acquired all the wheat grown by all the wheat growers all over Australia. And it was illegal, illegal for a producer to sell wheat to anybody else except the Australian Wheat Board. That fight ran for nearly 20 years. And we finally locked the head off that back in 2010. And even amongst the growing fraternity, um, it was a very cosy place to be. You didn't have to wake up at nighttime and market your grain. You just got told how much you were going to get and the checks arrived uh, every now and then. And, and there were those that said the sky would fall in uh, if the Australian Wheat Board lost its power of acquisition. We have the most booming, vibrant wheat market you could ever imagine. There's buyers coming from everywhere and you know, it, it's, it's totally revitalised the industry just by getting government out of that space. And so, Tony, you're a breath of fresh air. I mean, gosh, uh, there was a few of your types in my time and the Federated Farmers over here as well, but there wasn't many of us. <laughs> um, <and laughs> we, was, there's plenty of people who would love to see the clock turn back to the to the old ways. But um, uh, I asked you that question as sort of a patsy question because I knew the answer. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've done yeah, the research. Yeah. Hey, um, it worries me when I look at the demographic of Western Australia, the number of farms left, the amalgamations are happening just like here. There's less less potential, um, less individual owner operators than there used to be. Yeah, sure, the scale of enterprise is probably considerably larger to try and maintain that enterprise, um, you know, in, in, in a family ownership or in a private ownership. Where, how much, I mean, I've got an issue that, it concerns me that corporate farming taking out little guys to the point that they become so dominant that the little guy doesn't exist anymore is a bad thing no, for society. It, no, look, bad. It's, it, 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 it's happening. It is clearly happening. You know, the, the days of the three, 4,000-acre farm are well and truly over. You know, the big guys are getting bigger and bigger, sure. and then there are aggregations of these properties that have been handed over to corporates. You know, they're, they're there, um, and, and I don't know where we're going to go, but the, the death of the country town here is quite palpable. You know, towns that used to field a football team can't sure. anymore. Sure. Some towns cease to exist dealerships have closed. Um, it seems to be a natural phenomenon. The, the, the cost of farmland here in the last two or three years has just gone It's just gone stupid. It's way beyond any return that you can make farming it. So the speculators are in, um, and it's not unusual now to see you know, farmers that are carrying staggering debt uh, but running big operations. Um, you know, if interest rates went as high as they did in the early 80s, it would be painful. Well, and so I think disaggregation has happened before, where big farms have had to be split up to maintain themselves. That's happened in my in this province that I live in uh, over time. But this time, it just seems to have a momentum on that's different. And I uh, I am concerned that you get less players. Uh, I you know the individual. I'm I'm all for the for the for the rights of the individual to exist and and farm and do do what they see fit. But because we're having these straitjacket sort of rules and regulations all over us. 
the only ones that seem to be able to say yes to it all the time are the big corporates. And it bothers me that um, that's got momentum. So, and I, I just looked at your demographic over there and I looked at your membership uh, for the West Australian Farmers Federation and yours. And I looked at, you know, how, how you can represent them um, with this declining base. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how you're funded. Uh, for the for the PGA, but if it's voluntarily funded, you're getting less and less um, funds, surely. So, how are you maintaining the PGA's? Uh, you know, basically, it's it's balance sheet. How do you maintain it? Um, the corporates that are running the pastoral properties in WA are pretty responsible citizens. Right. Um, no, they, they've they've never faltered. Um, all their properties are listed. You know, we, we represent uh, almost eighty five percent of all the partial properties in West Australia, the non Indigenous ones, and, and and that is quite spectacular in the context of representation in other places of farm organisations. Um, but one of the things that has happened is that some of the the properties, most of them taken over by big corporates, they spend a, a staggering amount of money there. You know, the upgrades in yards and fences in water and roads and everything um, has been beyond the reach of the, the yep. smaller private owner. Um, we've got a lot of members that are just family shows and and and, and they, they survive because they're really, really good at what they do. Um, I don't see an issue in, in the pastoral estate anyway of the bigger corporates because they're, they're very responsible citizens right. and, they, and they do it well and they, they're very conscious of the fact that uh, work health and safety and environmental stuff that they'll get clobbered if they if they seem to be denuding the countryside. Um, yeah. Down here in the wheat belt, it's a bit different because the communities that don't exist up north but do down here are dying and uh, very hard to get volunteers for anything because there just aren't the number of people there anymore. Um but from the pure point, pure point of efficiency, um, these guys are putting huge pieces of equipment over massive acreages in a day, as seen in harvesting. Mm. It's a very efficient way to do it, and uh, it's very difficult to match that with a little guy. Right, so sure. I, I think we just have to accept this is organic. It's happening. The last thing we need is government stepping in to start regulating. That would be the, the worst thing that could happen. I think we just got to ride the beast and see where it takes us to. Yeah, look, sure. And so I was playing the devil's advocate again because I do see, uh, even in this province that we live in, it's quite a small province, only got 100,000 people. Um, but the retooling of the landscape, the, the whole Southland Plains have been retooled with dairying after sheep and beef farming. Uh, the reinvestment has been massive. And God knows what the debt is. I, you know, that's a different story, but um, nice it's, story. it's been fantastic. New houses, new sheds, new pastures new bridges it doesn't matter what it is it's 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 good it's been a, a revitalization so uh you know and and as i said um it may be that uh certain farms reach a capacity and it it it, it may be split up again if things get really yeah, bad yeah. it may well, get split up look it, it may um the kimberley was there were a lot of sort of fa smaller family shows up there, mm. and 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 um, Ernie Bridger, previous minister for agriculture here, was bemoaning the fact of the loss of the, of the family property. But the corporate people that are operating up there, you know, the, the money they're ploughing in. I mean, at the end of the day, um, if if animals aren't walking huge distances to water, if the shade put in which they're doing, there's a lot of stuff happening up there that uh, yeah, it's quite spectacular. And I take my hat off to them. Right. Oh, so. Yeah, wrapping this up, I mean, I'm going to ask the, the worst question of the evening, or of the interview, sorry, um, and that is the W, 
a farmers federation versus the PGA. In New Zealand, we have a group called Groundswell, who is um, sort of the fly in the ointment to the establishment um, farmer lobbies. And I liken uh, what you or how you express your story as a little bit like the Groundswell in New Zealand, except you've got a whole lot more um, members. Uh, members, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, I, I think um, Tony's got a whole lot more uh, um, balls in the air, effectively covering a whole lot more bases. But it, why is it? Do you think that the? Um, sorry, this is the Patsy question. Why is it that the uh, uh, the farmers' federations seem to be a little weak. They seem to be in the tent, as they say over here. If I could ask that question, I would. Um, John <laughs> Hassel is the president of the other outfit. Yeah. Uh, I'm scheduled to meet with him in the coming week. We do talk on a reasonably regular basis. I tend to find that we go a bit harder than they do. Yeah. Um, they have always traditionally sought government assistance whenever anything goes wrong. We've absolutely adamantly said, no way, absolutely no way. We don't want the government on our patch. Um, also, um, they tend to reside in the camp of what I'd refer to as a national party over here, which is a sort of in-the-middle party, and we're a bit more right-wing than that. And an attempt was made about three years ago to bash us together, and the vote came, voluntary thing, but the vote came out resoundingly that we remain two separate organisations and I, I was pretty pretty pleased with that because obviously there's a large proportion of the rural population that like what we do. Fantastic, and I you know I can see why. Um, it's interesting. Uh, after the Sunday Outsiders show, uh, I had a colleague who wrote who rang me actually and said, "You've got to get that guy Tony Seabrook on." <laughs> and, and I said, "Do you do you think he's a little bit like me?" And um, <laughs> Even Jas Freak would uh, agree with that. Hey, Tony, I think uh, we need to wrap this and um, let you get off, but it's been a fantastic uh, hour and a bit. Uh, we did cover a lot of bases, um, social oh, policy did. right through to uh, to your organization's um, membership. And I don't know, uh, it's the scale of enterprises you have in Western Australia is hard for us to fathom uh, from the little provinces in, in the south of New Zealand. But um, it is a busy uh, state, and um, I just wish you had better governance, just like I wish New Zealand had better governance. So, so it's been I a hope, pleasure. I hope you, um, I hope you can remedy that very soon and, and set the example for know, us. I think it would be very interesting if, in six months' time, we swap notes on both yeah. sides of the Tasman where we are at, because things are certainly coming to a head. Tony, okay. thank you so much for joining to us today. Desperate. My word, thank you for sure. Yep. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Jaspreet and Don and Greenwashed. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening. And so uh, if you want to give us some feedback, give it to in inbox at realitycheck.radio uh, or text 2057. I hope you enjoyed um, that discussion with Tony Seabrook. Uh, he's certainly a passionate man and uh, has a lot going on in his life. Uh, just amazing to think that Western Australia itself is nine to ten times the size of New Zealand, and he, his organisation pretty much covers that that whole uh, whole state. Uh, it's a, it, 
I've been to Western Australia and saw a smidgen of it. So it's, it's a huge place. Anyway, look, we're going to lead into some more greenwashing now. And Jasper, what have you got for us? I think you've got some perlers. <laughs> RNZ, the Public Interest Journalism Fund, that is a gift that keeps on giving. So this article on the 30th of June, Dawn, the climate change denying TikTok post that won't go away. So by Marco Silva and Mariam Ahmed for the BBC. So they've carried this article saying that, you know, earlier this year, TikTok vowed to clamp down on climate change denial. But a BBC investigation tracked a video that has been viewed millions of times, which has shock horror, climate information from spreading across the platform. And the one they are referring to is by a gentleman, uh, a video featuring Dan Pina, a self-styled, as the RNZ article says, business success coach with thousands of followers on social media. This particular video was shot in 2017 and six years later, it is still here. I mean, whatever happened to all that, you know, disinformation, stopping measures and fact checkers. So this is RNZ gaslighting people here, literally, to just like that article, you know, that email from Fedstone, you're mm. not supposed to think. You just have to tow the narrative, which is right now that you can't deny anything about climate change, which Big Brother deems right, because otherwise... Well, it's, of course, I go back to it's, it's legislated climate change that you and I talk about all the time, but but this is um, this is next level stuff. You can't even uh, put your toe over the line, and um, the media want us to, to sort of squash it. Uh, of course, the language on his uh, on that clip was outlandish. How did they know those words in twenty seventeen? Uh, <laughs> so, of- uh, so listen to this uh, clip here. This is by Melissa Fleming. She is, let's get this right, the United Nations Under Secretary for global communications. And this is uh, Melissa chatting about the measures that they have done to stop climate misinformation. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're we becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science. And- we own the science. <laughs> so, you know, no wonder RNZ is outraged how this one climate-denying TikTok is still doing the rounds. Isn't it interesting? And on top of that, the um, the attempt to call anything uh, that doesn't fit their narrative misinformation or disinformation, it just doesn't seem to desist this stuff. And I, you know, you and I have watched other videos online from this lady, Melissa Fleming. One is um, got UNESCO alongside it, Internet for Trust, similar sort of vein. Um, you know, trying to control everything. So. And they, they do it very, uh, you know, in our faces way. So Melissa here was in April 22, UN released this particular uh, media bulletin saying that 
the United Nations has teamed up with Google for verified climate information. 22nd April, 22. Millions of people around the world go to Google to get information about climate change and sustainability. Now, a year ago, when users search for climate change, they will find authoritative information from the United Nations in 12 languages and short and easy to understand information panels and visuals on the causes and effects of climate change, as well as individual actions people can take to help tackle the climate crisis. We are teaming up with Google to ensure factual, trustworthy, authoritative content about climate change is available to the global audience. So what makes them the single source of truth here? I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Uh, And it's interesting. It seems to me that that's where uh, the New Zealand farming lobbies are as well. They're they're falling into line with the single source of truth, uh, like Melissa's talking about. Um, They've got eyes wide shut. Um, I know that's a stupid term, but they they refuse to accept that anyone could have an alternate view. Now, just linking back to the to the Tom Sheehan visit, um, everyone said, but all oh, the Will Happer and Van Weingarten papers haven't been peer-reviewed or they haven't been published in a reputable journal or anything like that. Well, there's a reason for that, and you don't have to be that bright to understand why sometimes that doesn't occur. You know, it's a bit like this lady from Google's talking about, uh, sorry, from United Nations is talking about, is they want to control what comes into your hand and ears and mind. And, um, of course, I've learned in the last fortnight that there's other places to find these unpublished papers um, that have been hidden away from us, and it's called um, small a, small r, capital X, I, V, so, and that's a open access archive of about 2.8 million scholarly papers in physics, maths, computer science, quantitative biology, quantitative finance and statistics, um, electrical engineering, and a whole lot of other stuff. And its whole idea of it is it's on openness and uh, what could you say? So it's open for interrogation and, and mm. comment. And while some of the Will Happer and Van Weingarten et al. papers have been published in recent times, there's plenty of their papers in this archive. Mm. Uh, but, oh, no, the United Nations lady, she ain't going to go there. <laughs> it doesn't suit. It it doesn't suit. How dare they? But mm. I'll repeat the website again. That is arxiv.org. Yes, thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it's certainly interesting. And I admire these people who put themselves out there for, you know, public scrutiny. And they might even be lambasted at times, but there's a whole heap of papers here that are now available for for free. Because these are there's no royalties or anything here. There's many a time when I've tried to find some paper and access it through your institution library, pay forty dollars, pay twenty for a three hour download window. This is free stuff here. Yeah, so fantastic value. You will not get um, uh, the United Nations lady, Melissa, talking about how that the uh, summary for policymakers and the IPCC report mm. came out before the final report by six months. Nothing to see here. No corruption of the uh, of the output. The summary for policymakers came out before six months before the main report. That's unheard of. 
So there's no co- no corruption of the of the narrative, is there? You know, they've got one narrative, and this lady and her ilk want to control it for until last, until we spring them. You know, they and it's only you and I and others like um, we've had on as guests on the show who will stand tall and get these people back where they belong. Um, you know, we, we're we're the honest brokers here. How can they be so dishonest for so long? And, you know, even if, I mean, I'm very happy to put myself out there for scrutiny. That's, let's put it that way, because that's how mankind has evolved through debating ideas, always. That's how, and other than that, of course, as Ian Plymer said, one coal-fired plant at a time, but we've also advanced to our debating ideas. And once your speech is censored, what what else is there? But um, this particular RNZ article uh, concludes by saying that Paul Scully, the UK Minister for Technology, has told the BBC that we are propose, proposing an online safety bill. For your safety, you will not be shown anything contrary to the narrative. And at our Met office, Dr. McNeil welcomed TikTok's efforts against misinformation, but he questions whether this is a battle that the company can still win. As a scientist, he says that uh, I'm happy to be challenged. Well, I am glad. So perhaps you as a scientist should be saying that you should not be censoring information under a safety bill. When I was growing up, Don, safety bills and all of this used to be stuff like, you know, terrorism acts. And I'm talking about Kashmir in the 80s and all of this. Mm -hmm. Not for information. Never for information. Yep. And, uh, you know, you often hear that uh, this, they talk about this, and he talks about it in this article, that it undermines the scientific consensus. Well, science, as we know, doesn't work by consensus, never has, never will. Um, you have to keep testing the observations um, and your hypothesis because someone's likely to prove something different. Uh, it's right. never complete. I, although I have to say H2O is water. I don't think we can challenge that. But <laughs> no, but it's right from the time of Socrates and Galileo, it science has never worked with consensus. Hmm. So we're in a we're in a strange spot where I do you sense that the things are starting to have the wheels fall off a bit. I mean, not in New Zealand, but around the world, they do seem to be sort of hitting the wall on net zero. Sweden, Germany, UK. Uh, it's just it... like the COVID thing, Don. We still seem to be pushing fifth boosters and all of that, whereas the rest of the world has moved on. We seem to be a good six months to even a year behind all of this because remember what dear leaders said at the goalkeepers conference on the UN SDGs that New Zealand will be the first country in the world to put the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals into its very legislation. And boy, is that one promise uh, our XDL leader and her ilk have kept. And I mean everyone, all the parties in the beehive. I have no love lost for any of them. And, and it's spread right through local government as well and many of our big businesses. So mm. unbundling it, is it because these these um, entities want to have added costs to all the citizens of the country? Mm. Or are, are they really, really concerned about the environment? <laughs> you know, talk about greenwashing. If they're really concerned about the environment and doing the right, 
well, we had farmers filming this week on uh, various media websites that ah. we have used synthetic wool oh. from USA in New Zealand schools instead of using New Zealand wool. So we've used American synthetic carpet. I think I have just maligned that my last line. We have used American synthetic carpet instead of New Zealand wool. And it's in tile form too, so it's quite big squares, I gather, so it can be replaced when you have stains put on it. You know, you couldn't do that with wool, could you? You know, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have that with a woolen carpet. I'm being facetious, uh, Jaspreet. Uh, I can just imagine the procurement officer for the government services sort of saying, well, this is the best value and this is what they'll have. Um, interestingly, though, why is wool carpet expensive when farmers in New Zealand, the crossbred wool grower is getting the worst price um, ever, ever, ever. Mm. I mean, it's it's a dollar ninety or under two dollars a kilogram greasy. Um, that is uh, just unbelievable. I thought when I was getting three dollars plus ten years ago that I was in the the bells of the worst ever pricing. So now farmers are getting a bill to share their sheep. After the wool is sold, they've still got to pay a bit more. So why is carpet so expensive? And so there, is, I think there is still carpet made in New Zealand, not much, but um, because most of the mills closed uh, in the last 50 years, 60 years. But it does seem odd that wool carpets are still quite expensive when you know that the raw product is so, so, uh, so cheap or so, you know, the, the, the the farmer returns are terrible from it. So who's making the money? I imagine the cost of making wool carpet is quite high. You know, the, the, the technology required is still um, expensive to run. You've got to scare the wool. There's a whole lot of things. Uh, but so the rub with this whole argument is New Zealand's showing the world where as virtuous as can be on climate change and we should be using the greenest product possible and all the rest of it. And even the government doesn't do it. No, Let's even us the down. So, yeah. So the greenwashing is, um, as we know, Jasper, most of this big stuff uh, is being manipulated. There isn't. Mm. But that's just one side of the story. More value for money. How about emissions? Mm. How about the emissions? What is better done? Wool or synthetic carpet? Well, of course, they can blame those naughty sheep by adding in um, methane at some stupid global warming potential that will make the emissions from wool hellish, I imagine. Um, and so that's the nonsense that we keep talking about, uh, about the emission profiling of the New Zealand animal that's being done unfairly. But no doubt this is what is causing or or um, exercising the, the minds of these people because of the global warming of methane, the emissions, the burps of the little sheep. Uh, and Stuff did, did mention this in March, very conveniently, about how wool has come to be seen worse for the environment than synthetics. Because they say that sheep, while growing the wool, is releasing methane. When you replace the carpet, throw it out, it is again releasing methane in a landfill somewhere. But synthetics have a lower carbon footprint because when you throw them, you know, there is no methane being released. Mm -hmm. This makes perfect sense. I, I guess, as a mother, 
it would come down to this. What would I want? My baby is crawling on. Thankfully, my babies don't crawl anymore. But when they were crawling, what would I prefer them to be crawling on? Wool carpeted floors or synthetic carpeted floors? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I know the answer by the look of your face. Um, look, it, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, it always comes down to price. No matter how you cut the cake, price rules. And uh, as I said, the procurement officer, he may have all this up his um, up his sleeve on emissions, but in the end, I think they've probably come down to a price uh, point where they've done this uh, 600 schools or whatever uh, with, with the with the nylon squares. So it does gall. I mean, if you're a wool producer, uh, it would it makes you uh, annoyed, but that's where we are. Mm -hmm. All this virtuous stuff gets us in a hole. And, you know, right now I'm aware that there's farmers lobbying against, for instance, Fonterra, because Fonterra is trying to scope, so, sorry, put their um, scope three emissions profiling inside the farm gate to make the farming animal and the farmer look the bad guy in the whole mix um where does that end it's not going to end well when the farmers start realizing what's going on uh yeah what, which, what's which being done to them let down the garden path mm. but yeah let's so listeners if you're planning to replace a carpet in the near future don and i would be very interested in knowing what factor is the you know the critical one that decides what you go with synthetic or wool flick and, us a text or an email please and same with insulation you know mm -hmm. theoretically that should be a serious consideration now uh, at the price of wool it's so poor um do you want to have wool bats or you know genuine wool sheep's wool bats or do you want to have <clears throat> you know artificial ones you know I'm not sure where that ends up either. That debate, based on what we've seen in this debate, uh, they'll be putting the methane emissions against the um, insulation bats that are of natural wool and uh, trying to find a, a, a point of difference there. Well, common sense should prevail, um, but it might not. Common sense is not very common, Don. And another place where it's not very common, let's get is uh, greenwashing especially in the urban space. And the classic example I see for this one is the Let's Get Wellington Moving project. The price tag, a cool $7.5 billion. $7.5 billion for the tiny, coolest little capital in the world, Wellington. That's what you're going to be spending to get you all out of your cars, especially around the CBD and get business thriving and sustainable. And yet, I seem to find headlines every day about retailers not being very happy about, this was more recently, about a 130-year-old pharmacy in Wellington that is closing its doors for good, citing the fact that let's get Wellington moving just leaves it with no option. This is the UFS pharmacy where they've said that the plan to scrap private vehicles from the Golden Mile between Courtney Place and Lambton Quay is the final nail in the coffin. But 
why would retailers act like this, John? Are they demented? Can't they see the obvious benefits? We can't just be spending $7.5 billion on a castle in the sky. Or can I, don't we- know. I don't know how a city like Wellington can have $7.5 billion sort of sloshing around to do this sort of stuff, even borrowing it. I mean, it, it's interesting. I think when it's now... 12 years since I was hovering around, walking around Wellington, it was a nice place to walk around if you could keep out of the wind. Um, Let's get Wellington moving. Uh, It's on the move because you and I as regional taxpayers are feeding the machine massively. And I would rather that Wellington, um, you know, the movement in Wellington was of less bureaucrats moving around and more productive people moving around doing stuff. So, you know, I know that's being facetious and a bit glib, but there, there is, um, I thought, and I, the other thing I recall was Wellington was very much into push bikes and walking. Mm. So this is next level. Uh, is the retailing going to be affected? Uh, well, it, it seems like people are saying it is, but, you know, for instance, that pharmacy sector, I think that's under serious pressure anyway. I'm not being I'm not being negative to the I feel for the people that are in that business. Uh, but we've got chemist shops closing down probably all around the country because the big chains are taking them out. And uh, you know, it's just it's part of that evolution. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, as much as you like to know this that owner operating businesses survive, it's a struggle. And certainly I wouldn't want to be paying. Well, everyone says the rents are going to go up and it's going to be better in downtown Wellington. Well, you know, that just might not be the case. Might not. There might be a lot of empty shops. Yep. I am looking at this NZ Herald article about uh, this pharmacy closing, the UFS, Mm. and it shows a picture of the shop front with a poster on it in black. It says SOS Coatney Place. SOS for Save Our Street. Hmm. Stop deluded bureaucrats at the Wellington City Council and let's get Wellington moving from banning customers and cars entering Courtney Place. That will kill businesses and destroy our vibrant ethnic percent, costing us millions and too many jobs. Authorized by Barry Wilson. He's a former lawyer who's leading a group of business owners who plan to fight the proposed Golden Mile changes. Now, you would think the government would listen. You would think the bureaucrats would listen. These are people who run businesses, who obviously got some concerns here, but nothing. Seems Well, well I think if I've listened correctly to some other media that uh, there's could be a vote of no confidence in this, or, you know, the, the vote may go against this proposal in the next few weeks. But what I've noted around the world, you know, around New Zealand, when something like that, that happens, it is just a, a roadblock for a bit. And they generally come back with a revised plan and it happens anyway. Um, has this thing got such long legs already that it can be stopped I'd, or can't be stopped? I don't know. You know, what the problem is, I think these guys haven't read the Ernest and Young report. <laughs> yeah. You know? Because it was Ernest quite clear, Young, wasn't it? Very, very clear. Mm. But even retailer said that has submitted this on this one, saying that we cannot, we cannot afford this. They're all being told to go look at uh, let's get Wellington 
commissioned assessment, which was carried out by the one of the big consulting firms, Ernest & Young, that says impacts to retailers are going to be positive, the ones who transform. What does transform mean? Just transform themselves. <laughs> well, it's very hard if, you, if you're a chemist or if you're a retailer sell, selling fashions or something. What do you transform to? It is, it is an odd word, isn't it? It is. I, I don't know. It says uh, the retail assessment report, uh, just a concise summary from Ernest & Young, says it is expected widened footpaths together with more spaces for bikes and scooters will lead to more customers for the Golden they, There you have it. If only UFS would wait a bit, yeah. it would be all good. Yes. Landlords could expect greater lease demand, lower vacancy rates, increased rental appreciation, and higher sales volume as a result of free white light spaces, increased pedestrian footfall, and modal share. And they have quoted studies from uh, two, three, quite a few of them from California, some from Oregon, all over the world. Well, people sample sizes of anything between 1,000 to 10,000 saying that, hey, it worked for us in New Zealand. Well, LinkedIn retailers, it will work for you. Well, um, I'm just looking up as we're speaking um, Fresno in California, and I went there um, thinking, you know, it was 10 years difference, uh, different times between visits. And the second time I went back thinking, oh, I'll just book a hotel in downtown Fresno for a, for a night. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be fantastic. It'll be you know, best place that we can sort of get in the middle of town and have a look around. Well, I got a hell of a shock. Um, 10 years difference uh, and downtown Fresno was dead. Uh, and I only learned soon after bocking that and, and going to the wrong place, effect to, to, to get some sort of action, the, where all the retail action was out in a place called Clovis, which had effectively been the new satellite um, town for Fresno. And that's where all the chain stores and the malls were. Um, a good probably five miles from downtown Fresno, they had moved downtown out. My point is, um, property developers and speculators and all sorts of people do try to change the dynamic of a city. I'm not sure that can happen in downtown Wellington. I'm not sure they can move uh, to satellites uh, like they can and other because it's quite sort of constrained. That's that sort of um, yeah. low area of Wellington. So, I mean, bright ideas happen with city planners all the time, and things do evolve. But I, so I'm cynical enough to know that 7.5 billion dollars worth of debt is something that downtown Wellington needs to think long and hard about because who's going to wear that debt? Who is going to wear it? Is it going to be those retailers paying high um, rates for their rental properties uh, or what? Or is it going to be the wider community, like the whole of Wellington through their property-based rating paying for it? Mm -hmm. That's more likely. And moreover, I'd imagine uh, when you analyse it, uh, Wellington a fair bit in a big way feeds off the provinces. And so you and I will be funding it. Mm -hmm. It's just the way the way the commerce works. And literally, even though you and I don't live in uh, Wellington, Don, mm. we will be funding it because the rest of the country subsidizes Wellington to a large extent. Well, 14,000 more public servants uh, since 2017, uh, what, 200 or so advisory bodies set up. Um, you know, none of that comes. Uh, I, I, I don't know 
I probably should have researched this, the population of Wellington, what, whether it's grown in recent years. Mm. It has to have, I would have thought. Yep. But, but you know, uh, bright ideas happen all the time. And as as you know, downtown Invercargill, for instance, has had a $200 million mall put in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, $40 million has gone from the city fathers, uh, the council, um, you know, and, and, and other businesses have put in the rest. Um, not quite sure what the debt loading is, but Invercargill had 50 years of decline. The slow de- population decline since the reforms of the mid 80s. And, and the, once the TY smelter was built, there was a bit of a hangover because they needed less people. Just like any other business, you need less people, the more efficient you get. And the hangover for Invercargill was pretty bad. And the, the buildings uh, were terrible. And of course, the earthquake rules since 2011 just made it much more onerous. So great, they've done a big development downtown. But where is the hangover going to be for the other businesses that are in the more dilapidated parts of town? Uh, I mean, I, I just don't see it. And of course, we've got a department store that is nationally known called H&J Smith's. It's like the, the Harrods of Invercargill. Mm. What well, used to be, it's it has changed, and it's now closing after what is it, hundred and something years? It's going to be closing by November. Uh, so th- things are changing, things are evolving. Is that happening in Wellington as well? Is it happening in every other city? I imagine it is. I imagine it is. But for Invercargill, Don, I can't help but add that ratepayers have paid for the new inner city mall to the tune of what something like forty million. So 40 these million. public private partnerships and H&J Smith, the one you call the Harrods. I love that store. The kids used to go there for Christmas photographs with Santa every year. They have not been subsidized. And I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I'm Mm. saying that the inner city mall, which is going to be the death knell of many of the smaller retail stores, has iced. Well, and and that's Invercargill has a property company. uh, Invercargill City Council has a property holdings company and you know they have invested significantly in some buildings around the town and of course we questioned uh, a big write down in their balance sheet earlier on in our programming so i don't know how all this works and well i do know what i what i've learned in my life is even if things aren't right people in authority can make them look okay and right and if they if they can weather the heat Generally, it all goes away after a couple of years. That's you're, not how getting, you're not getting cynical in your oh, no, are no, you? No. Are you done? I thought that yeah. was my, my prerogative. That's the game. Just weather the storm and people people like you and I get sick of, yeah, I don't, we've talked about this too. It's not a pleasant thing to want to always be saying and something negative. You always feel like you're bashing people that have done stuff and you know, they, they, get, you know, they get recognized for doing good stuff. But when it's other people's money, uh, I do I do start to worry about it. And um, that's totally. often the case. Totally. UFS is not the only one that is crying foul in Wellington. There is other bigger ones, such as uh, the wholesale and grocery supplier, Moore Wilson's. There is Cranfields there talking about this, that, you know, this is not going to work for us. They've spoken to shoppers there. 
There's some who've said, no, we wouldn't be able to park the car and wouldn't be able to come into the weekends to do shopping, scalp around with kids gear. If you're, you know, doing footy with kids on a Saturday and then you plan a quick detour into a city. Well, if you've got a car and then filthy kids at the back, you know, wet, muddy uniforms and whatnot. I, I don't know how practical this is for uh, people, but in a press statement, Wellington Mayor said, that while change would be difficult, she could not shy away from backing progressive and transformational action. Regardless of what, two big submissions, one from Retail NZ and the other from Property Council New Zealand says, and I am done going to quote the couple of points from the Property Council submission here. They have asked, and they've said that in a consultation meeting with the Golden Mile team earlier, in 22, we were told that those using a private vehicle spend 150 per shop as compared to 100 per shop by those who walk. That is concerning as an extra 50 between customers could mean the difference between retailers opening or closing. They also add the impact on businesses has not been property, properly analyzed. We haven't seen a decent economic assessment undertaken. During earlier consultation, it was told about 100-odd car parks might be removed. The current design shows 300 to be removed, with final numbers changing. Day-to-day -day running of businesses will be detrimentally impacted by the limited access to commercial service vehicles. Similarly, restricting delivery of goods by large commercial vehicles from 10 to 3 and 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. on weekdays will have similar issues. And lastly, alarmingly, the September 2021 cost paper predicts the total cost apportioned by 12 extra buses on the Golden Mile will be 9.7 million per additional bus and $107,000 per extra customer or passenger it can carry. Seriously? How do they make sense of these numbers? Uh, yeah, that. That sounds outrageous. And of course, you know, not to detract from what you've just said, uh, of course, there's a um, there's the opposite view by uh, Councillor, uh, Greater Wellington Councillor Roger Blakey said that uh, Auckland City Council had uh, the same concerns when they did up 4th Street uh, between 10, 2010 and 2015. Uh, and, but a later study by Auckland City Council showed pedestrian numbers increased by 47% during peak hours and retail spend increased by 47% as well and hospitality spend by 429 So the justification can happen 10 years on. So again, it'll come down to the statistics. How many people have they surveyed? How long was the survey for? Did they hit the peak, you know, the long weekend school holiday period? Was it another time? Because I can tell you, if I'm otherwise walking in the CBD, parking my car half a K away, walking to work, that's just me. When I go on school holidays, there's three of us. So suddenly there is 300% increase in the Bopara <laughs> family were traversing the streets of Invercargill by foot. So, yeah, nice <laughs> statistics and, you know, damn lies. The retail ends at submission was far more, you know, forthright. They mm. simply said, we are concerned by what appears to be an ongoing series of anti-car policies being pursued by Wellington City Council, with decisions being made without full consideration of the broad impacts. While it is unfashionable, says Retail NZ, 
Private vehicles, while it's unfashionable to say so, private vehicles play a key role in enabling shoppers to access stores in the central city, which in turn helps maintain a diversity of retail offerings. Thus, ongoing restrictions will lead to reduced viability of certain kinds of retail, ultimately leading stores which rely on customers to come by car to just shut shop. We like diversity, but they suddenly don't like diversity of retailers. And yeah, don't get me started on diversity. Oh, it's sometimes you sort of wonder if it's designed to uh, really annoy people um, so that uh, it gets more cars off the road and effectively gets them into bikes and um, buses. And I think Wellington's going to have a fast transit train site system sometime in the future i imagine it'll go out to the road out to the airport or something um jaspreet they once these things get past the design phase i'm not sure whether they can ever be stopped they will just redefine or retitivate it around the edge and all of a sudden they'll get the tick there'll be something that says someone will say yes i can now accept that we'll we'll let this through There'll be lobbying. There'll be a whole lot of um, behind-the-bike-shed deals going on. Or it could be something like uh, the train, the Tihuya, that uh, was begun, I think, from Hamilton to Auckland. It's Mm. losing money in every trip. And then we don't seem to care about emissions because, hey, it is tick-boxing, one of the United Nations SDGs. Mm. We are wanting to be the first country to get all the 17... SDGs ticked off on our report card. So it'll just be a loss-making enterprise and nobody will say anything. Just carry on. Yeah, so we've often talked about this. Is a recession going to tip the scales against all this sort of stuff? Because we've now had two quarters uh, of of negative growth. <laughs> Not, that seems an oxymoron, doesn't it? Negative growth. Um, a couple more and things will really be, that's called a double dip recession, isn't it? Mm. And yeah, I think things will, the rubber will hit the road then. Uh, interest rates are, must be killing some of these projects, just must be eating them alive uh, because we did get used to sub 5% interest. Now we're sort of heading to 8 and 9% uh, for, for mainstream borrowers. I know local government can probably get it cheaper. But um, yeah, I think, I think uh, people are going to have a wake-up call very soon. What's and a few? That, that, yeah, what's, what's a few, few million? billion? Few billion more of debt between you know the team of five million. Don we seem yeah, to yeah. care well, about the double digit increase in that. Well, the only places that don't seem to care about it are the ones that have got um, privileged positions, and they are um, you know the local authority and central government agencies. They don't really care about inflationary costs. They don't care. In fact, inflation is part of their game, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And it's only it's only the real people, the real producers that pay that that overshoot and that extra cost that they they put on us. But that's the same old story, Jasper. Every week we talk about it. I dare say it's it's our job to to educate people. That's how it works. And I just hope our children can get that sorted. Because <laughs> no. my gener my generation hasn't got it sorted. That's the fact. I. I have often said this, and it might sound a bit too much, but the battles we don't fight, our kids inherit. Mm-hmm. I, 
you know it it even when i say it it sounds blowing the things you know just speaking a bit out of my heart but seriously the battles we don't fight who who else is going to do this who who is coming what do we think we are waiting for going along with this nonsense and for how long well if it gives you any solace jaspreet i think your effort and um the way we've talked to other people i mean my circle of friends are starting to wake up i mean we're all in our 60s admittedly starting to wake up to what we didn't see mm. and you know a lot of people are holding uh faith in a change of government in the, in october and i have to be the one that says well yeah great what next uh because that ain't going to fix it there's going to have to be as much as uh we were told this is all um nothing to see here and the and the build back better and the great reset and all that sort of thing the great reset is going to have to happen and it's going to have to be on our terms or else it's going to be on their terms and that's that's the fight and i don't see anyone in new zealand willing to take on the fight yet i used to say very flippantly so that you know we care about our new zealanders care about the beer beach the beer beach barbecue in that order Mm-hmm. Well, when the carbon shortage hits, the beer is under threat. Okay. Beach access has been restricted in many places. Though today I see uh, one particular uh, bit of beach in Marlborough, the local EV has filed uh, its own appeal in court saying that, but you can't do that to Tengata Fenua. Anyone else, you can stay off the beaches and barbecue. Gosh, we know exactly what's happening with meat. So if we don't, see the writing on the wall now when beer beach barbecue is being affected what what else is there but <laughs> i think there's one thing don and i have spoken of at least i have every time and i've dragged at times an unwilling don along because you know we all know he's a pale steel white male is diversity oh. <laughs> yeah i'm almost in the uh, unique um club now i'm i'm in that a pale stale white male you know there's less of us <laughs> yep and so this week or let's go back to last week when we had discussed about and i had posited this thing that did new zealand steel which got a 140 million dollar taxpayer subsidy for its you know undertaking a series of decarbonization projects to reduce emissions to save us from the climate armageddon did it get it because it is doing diversity right we had played a video at that point and i am going to see if we can do that again and maybe rejog the memories of some of you who might not have listened to that one because here is the lady the foreman here from new zealand steel proudly claiming their diversity credentials so here goes in 2010 we had female participation on site of around 
and one of the goals that was set was to get to 25% by 2022. We're now in 2021 and we've hit 20.2% and we've re-looked at that and said, you know what, we can go bigger. So that's where this 40-40-20 goal has come from. We want 40% male, 40% female and 20% gender diverse. And along with the work that we've been doing in the cultural identity, gender identity, all of the life ages and stages, it's all about anyone can work here. Anyone can work there. And ends it still. This was a video from last year. They are working towards having a workforce ratio of 40% male, 40% female, 40% LGBTQIA+. I'm thinking when they say gender diverse, it is not a one-off. This is not just one company that mentioned it. As John, uh, John and I noticed this week, this weekend just gone, we had a look at Spark, Spark's website. And it's on Spark's website, under their sustainability tab, is a subsection that relates to diversity and inclusion. Our diversity performance, proclaims Spark, our ambition is to achieve a 40-40-20 representation Spark-wide, which refers to 40% men, 40% women, and 20% of any gender as well as gender diverse representatives. Is it a coincidence, John, that there's two big companies, Spark and Z-Steel, they're both talking about this 40-40-20 ratio? Well, Jaspreet, I imagine you're going to tell me there's no coincidence and you're going to find the way right back to the United Nations. And am I right? One trick pony, Don. That's, that's me. That is me. <laughs> Well, so, I hope you hope you've got the genesis of it right here. <laughs> so I, I, being the one trick pony that I just admitted myself, I put on forty, forty, twenty, just the three numbers and gender diversity in Google. Helpful Google, a single source of truth. Google, our climate change uh, authoritative source. Google, and uh, I looked at quite a few about 88,000 results out there, and you have all these big companies targeting the same thing, 40, 40, 20. And the, uh, male, female, and gender diverse. The first thing that strikes the cynical me is, is that representative of the usual population demographics? What do you think? Uh, let us know if you think that there is actually 20% of people who identify as gender diverse, because in my nearly 45 years of life, I can very honestly say, and I've spoken to a couple of people, and I only know a couple of uh, folks intimately enough who are gender diverse who I could ask this question. They think the figure is in single digits, low single digits at that. So then why are these companies targeting a 20% gender diverse figure? I can't answer that, uh, except that that's uh, in the sort of strategy documents uh, that you have sent to me mm -hmm. uh, from the United Nations. Uh, Women's empowerment, uh, I think it's, in, it's it's headed up, but it clearly goes into uh, gender diversity, uh, including male and other genders, uh, other um, well, non-binary or, or gender diverse. And so uh, I, I'm on your side. Um, I know plenty of people who identify as as gay, 
but they they're gay men. They don't identify as um, as binary or or gender diverse. Uh, they are quite happy that there's men and there's women, male, female. So, you know, I I can't I can't visualize that number either. It just doesn't make sense. But either that, or we're getting the wrong end of the stick in terms of uh, what they mean by gender diverse and non-binary. It can only mean certain things, surely. And twenty percent seems ridiculous. So I mean, one of these results on the first page of Google New Zealand when I looked up 40, 40, 20 gender diversity, and said was the survey report from the from AUT Auckland University of Technology, and they say this report is in support of the women's empowerment principles established by the UN Women and United Nations Global Compact Office. But remember, mm-hmm. United Nations has nothing to do with their lives. You know, this is just just an oversight here. And uh, so they say we have a public statement of support towards gender equality. We have committed to achieving a gender balance target of 40, 40, 20 at senior leadership level, which comprises of the executive team and their direct reports. Having a gender balanced leadership is a key enabler to support our organization's strategy and accelerator transformation that's a word salad if i have a new one yep it is a word it's a word salad but uh you know they've got a directive it's given to them um they've they've said this is their strategy they're working to to the aims and objects of the united nations compact so you've got a copy of that report don't you don i have yeah, and looking at page two, the very bottom, they say, AUT says, furthermore, we even publicly commit support from an executive level through our new sustainability loans, where we require the organization who are requiring a sustainable loan to report their diversity metrics and goals for women in the organization, including leadership levels as a mandatory requirement. Mm. Well, that's so predictable. Is it all about the money then? Are we done here? The argument dusted. Yeah, follow the money. It's isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? But that's where we're heading. These um the financing of stuff is getting more difficult with with discussions like this. Uh you imagine going for a loan and um having to report on this sort of stuff. But we know that that's happening, don't we, Jasper? Because we've talked about the corporate equality index, we've talked about ESGs. Uh, it's it's happening, but is it? I'm starting to read that there is pushback coming. People have had enough. So have a look at the statement from uh, MoneyWorks.co.nz on gender diversity initiatives in the financial industry. This is their statement is just uh, recently, 8th of May, 2023. (laughs) MoneyWorks Ethical Investing says, Mm. in addition to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 5, which relates to achieving gender equality and empowerment of women everywhere, there's other initiatives. There's a 30% club and the 40-40 vision. I, at one time, thought 40-40 was just normal vision. Uh, It's 2020. Sorry, 2020, that tells you how much I know. But that's what I thought. And 
40-40 vision aims to see women fill 40% of executive roles in the top 200 listed Australian companies by 2030. There's also an aim to have a 40-40-20 balance across the workforce with an aim to reduce the gender pay gap. Then they talk of 30% club. The 30% club is a global organization that aims to have at least 30% representation of women on all boards and C-suits, so the CEO, executives, and so on. By being one of the signatories to these types of organizations, says MoneyWorks, our fund managers use their active engagement to discuss their goal for gender diversity with the companies they invest in. It is all about the money. Case settled. Yeah, case settled. Uh, but as as we know, listeners, Jasper digs in, and um, as we were talking, she was sleuthing through this uh, site and has nailed this one, uh, the previous site, and nailed this one, uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number five, and there it all is. Um, but how many companies in New Zealand are embracing this stuff? Well, we found out Spark is. Mm-hmm. We found out that um, one uh, I think formerly Vodafone is. Yeah. Uh, so maybe listeners, you just might want to do a bit of research as to who you trade with, because effectively it may not suit your beliefs, uh, who you want to, you know, how, how these companies are operating. So um, the power of the consumer might have the say. Absolutely. But it is, it's so interesting. Every week brings mm. in something new. But the entire suit of initiatives that they're pushing under the DEI initiatives, that mm. diversity, equity, inclusion, is pretty much the sustainable development goals in a nutshell. The ESGs that are being pushed, the environmental, social, and governance factors, there's no different. Another acronym for DEI, another acronym for SDG. There's there's a lot of strange bedfellows around. And they would have us believe our leaders, current and past, that the United Nations have absolutely nothing to do with New Zealand. We are a sovereign nation. We make up our own rules and we don't allow any external, unelected, unaccountable bodies to have any effect on us. No, but it's all there uh, for people who are interested to see. And I think there's more and more people. Um, willing to see it. And as I talked about earlier, that uh, Ivert Cummins, uh, Cummings, Cummins sorry, uh, YouTube clip called The Greatest History Never Told is something that uh, if you're interested, you should go back and give yourself an hour and a half to listen to it. It exposes this sort of stuff, uh, the genesis of it and how it's playing out. Um, and people like Jasper have studied the 17 um, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, at the United Nation, and I think there's 169 sub-pillars under those. And it is all there. It's cost a lot of money to develop and um, strategize and uh, put into a package. And you didn't even know it was happening, did you? Effectively, it was all there in front of your nose. It's been there all this time. And yeah, yeah, are we having fun, boy, delving into this? So, you know, I think life is rather sad, Dawn, if this is how I get my kicks. But yeah, whatever it takes. Just one last thing. 
big um big ups to the agri kids uh shows around the, the south island uh that they had the national finals i think in timaru um so it was great to see on the facebook pages of of some of the um kids how you know, the farm kids doing their doing their junior farming um experts showing their farming expertise off uh it just shows you that there are enterprising kids out there doing stuff and uh, it was um it was just nice to see their activity so yep. big ups to them and a special shout out to our local out here the Horoko Valley Primary School mm. where the children have got the second and the third place in the at the FMG Young Farmer of the Year Agri Kids for the juniors they have also nabbed let me see there've been quite a few wins out here they have also there's a mm-hmm. There's a young guy, Thomas, won uh, the contestant of the of the of the year. I think that was great. It doesn't say his surname, but fantastic. yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out. Contestant mm. of the year, and he's also got the second prize. Mm. So the good thing is it exposes um, or it builds a connection, urban uh, versus rural, and um, yeah, it was in Timaru or there thereabouts. So uh, yeah, I I just think those sorts of things are good good value. It is sad though that it didn't make it to TV. There was Facebook lives there, but did you catch it on TV, Don? No, no. But I'm no. not a big TV watcher either, so uh, uh, maybe maybe it was there. But look, uh, part of our job should be really to build the connection between urban and rural. Everyone talks about a division. It's not a division created by urban or rural. That the media would love to have you think it's a divide. It isn't. It's actually just a disconnection. And, you know, that's all I think you and I would like to see is there's a far better connection between how rural New Zealand works and how urban New Zealand works. Because, boy, we know we need urban New Zealand or else, you know, farmers feed cities uh, and farmers need cities as well. So that's the way it is. And with that, we come to the end of this week's Greenwashed with me and John. I hope you enjoyed the show and we look forward to catching up with you another time. For now, before we go, there's a quick announcement. I will be coming back on Freedom TV, on Voices for Freedom, with a specific New Zealand-focused session on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Yep, the very ones which are not supposed to be affecting our lives. So catch up with me on Sunday, the 16th of July, 8 p.m., and look out on the VFF socials for more details about this one. But this is Sunday, the 16th, 8 p.m. And here's a short podcast on DEI, or as the Canadian psychologist, Dr. Jordan Peterson would rather pronounce it, die, and how they are playing out in our universities. And you might see a few similarities between New Zealand and Canada. Have a great rest of the week. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. I wrote this article recently for one of Canada's major newspapers, The National Post. I'm reading it for those of you who would rather watch and listen. It's entitled, D.I.E. Must Die. This is Why. I recently resigned from my position as full tenured professor at the University of Toronto. I am now Professor Emeritus, and before I turned 60... Emeritus is generally a designation reserved for superannuated faculty, albeit those who had served their term with some distinction. 
I had envisioned teaching and researching at the U of T full time until they had to haul my skeleton out of my office. I loved my job. And my students, undergraduates and graduates alike, were positively predisposed toward me. But that career path was not meant to be. There are many reasons, including the fact that I can now teach many more people and with less interference online. But here's a few more. First, my qualified and supremely trained heterosexual white male grad students, and I've had many others, by the way, are no longer eligible upon graduation for university research positions, despite stellar scientific dossiers. This is partly because of diversity, inclusivity, and equity mandates. My preferred acronym, DIE. These have been imposed universally in academia. Despite the fact that university hiring committees had already done everything reasonable for all the years of my career, and then some, to ensure that no qualified minority candidates were ever overlooked. My students are also partly unacceptable, precisely because they are my students. I am academic persona non grata because of my unacceptable philosophical positions. And this isn't just some inconvenience. These facts rendered my job morally untenable. How can I accept prospective researchers and train them in good conscience, knowing their employment prospects to be minimal? Second reason. This is one of many idiot issues of appalling ideology currently demolishing the universities and downstream the general culture not least because there are simply not enough qualified BIPOC people in the pipeline. BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, for those of you not in the knowing woke. This has been common knowledge among any remotely truthful academic who has served on a hiring committee for the last three decades. This means we're out to produce a generation of researchers utterly unqualified for the job. And we've seen what that means already in the horrible grievance studies disciplines. That, combined with the death of objective testing, has compromised the university so badly that it can hardly be overstated. And what happens in the universities eventually colors everything, as we have discovered. All my craven colleagues must craft die statements to obtain a research grant. They all lie, accepting the minority of true believers. And they teach their students to do the same. And they do it constantly with various rationalizations and justifications, further corrupting what is already a stunningly corrupt enterprise. Some of my colleagues even allow themselves to undergo so-called anti-bias training conducted by supremely unqualified human resources personnel lecturing inanely and blithely and in an accusatory manner about theoretically all-pervasive racist, sexist, heterosexist attitudes. Such training is now often a precondition to occupy a faculty position on a hiring committee. 
need I point out that implicit attitudes cannot, by the definitions generated by those who have made them a central point of our culture, be transformed by short-term explicit training? Assuming that those biases exist in the manner claimed, and that is a very weak claim, and I'm speaking scientifically here, the implicit association test, the much-vaunted IAT, which purports to objectively diagnose implicit bias, that's automatic racism and the like, is by no means powerful enough, valid and reliable enough, to do what it purports to do. Two of the original designers of that test, Anthony Greenwald and Brian Nozick, have said as much publicly. The third, Professor Mazarin Banerjee of Harvard, remains recalcitrant. Much of this can be attributed to her overtly leftist political agenda, as well as to her embeddedness within a subdiscipline of psychology, social psychology, so corrupt that it denied the existence of left-wing authoritarianism for six decades after World War II. The same social psychologists, broadly speaking, also casually regard conservatism in the guise of system justification as a form of psychopathology. Banerjee's continued countenancing of the misuse of her research instrument combined with the status of her position at Harvard, is a prime reason we all still suffer under the dye yoke, with its baleful effect on what was once the closest we had ever come to truly meritorious selection. Furthermore, the accrediting board for grad clinical psych training programs in Canada are now planning to refuse to accredit university clinical programs unless they have a social justice orientation. That, combined with some recent legislative changes in Canada, claiming to outlaw so-called conversion therapy, but really making it exceedingly risky for clinicians to do anything ever but agree always and about everything with their clients, have likely doomed the practice of clinical psychology, which always depended entirely on trust and privacy. Similar moves are afoot in other professional disciplines, such as medicine and law. And if you don't think that psychologists, lawyers, and other professionals are anything but terrified of their now woke governing professional colleges, much to everyone's extreme detriment, you simply don't understand how far all of this has gone. Just exactly what am I supposed to do when I meet a grad student or young professor hired on die grounds? manifest instant skepticism regarding their professional ability? What a slap in the face to a truly meritorious outsider. And perhaps that's the point. The die ideology is not friend to peace and tolerance. It is absolutely and completely the enemy of competence and justice. And for those of you who think that I am overstating the case or that this is something limited in some trivial sense to the university, consider some other examples. This report from Hollywood, cliched hotbed of liberal sentiment, for example, indicates just how far this has gone. In 2020, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, 
the Oscar people, embarked on a five-year plan, does that ring any historical bells, to, quote, diversify our organization and expand our definition of the best. They did so in an attempt which included developing, quote, new representation and inclusion standards for Oscars to, hypothetically, quote, better reflect the diversity of the movie-going audience. What fruit has this initiative, offspring of the die ideology, borne? According to a recent article penned by Peter Kiefer and Peter Savodnik, but posted on former New York Times journalist Barry Weiss's Common Sense website, and Weiss left the Times because of the intrusion of radical left ideology into that newspaper, just as Tara Henley did recently vis-a-vis -vis the CBC. Quote, We spoke to more than 25 writers, directors, and producers, all of whom identify as liberal, and all of whom described a pervasive fear of running afoul of the new dogma. How to survive the revolution? By becoming its most ardent supporter. Suddenly, every conversation with every agent or head of content started with, is anyone BIPOC attached to this? And this is everywhere. And if you don't see it, your head is either in the sand or shoved somewhere far more unmentionable. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain, and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.